Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, as well as those who sponsor us directly, uh, monetarily. I will get into our sponsors first. So our first sponsor is, is Elsa's. Elsa's is a bar restaurant here in Montreal in Plata Montreal. If you live in Montreal, you know that this is a fantastic place. It's on Roy Street, Roy and de Billion. If you're planning on visiting Montreal, definitely check out Elsa's. Elsa's is it's one of those places where the locals go. It's a little bit off the beaten track. Uh, track. It's off of like Saint-Anna, off of Saint-Denis, off of Saint-Catherine. It's not where uh, the drunken sort of <laughs> the tourists go. It's where locals go. It's the kind of place where it's a wonderful environment. The food is fantastic. Uh, the booze is great. But the music is not so loud that you can't have a conversation. It's a wonderful place. So uh, this particular episode is brought to you by Elsa's. Um, it's also brought to you by Good Mix. Good Mix is a kind of seedy, uh, kind of paleo, wonderful stuff. Um, it's made in Vermont, and it is something you have it in the morning with breakfast. You have it with yogurt. Uh, people, some people have it with milk. Something it's all various ways, but it's very, very good for you. It's very virtuous. Um, it fills you for hours and hours and hours. I have this stuff in the morning. And I have it at around six six o'clock in the morning, and it fills me all the way until the afternoon. Like I'm not hungry until then. It's wonderful stuff. It's really good for your digestion. It's uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but apparently it has something to do with it promotes really healthy gut bacteria, which is good for all sorts of things that we don't entirely understand, but know are important. Uh, This episode is also brought to you by The Wiggle Room. The Wiggle Room is Montreal's premier place for burlesque. Burlesque is a a wonderful art art form that is all about what is not shown. It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing. The Wiggle Room is the the brainchild of Jeremy Heckman, who is one of the most... Uh, he started Montreal's um, Fringe Festival. He's just an all-around kind of amazing, uh, bon vivant, fascinating character in Montreal. Uh, this place is... The Wiggle Room is exactly what Jeremy was describing when we were in our 20s, and now, you know, we're in our 40s now, and he's actually created this place. It's going to the Wiggle Room is like getting in a time machine and going back to the Montreal that is lovingly described by William Weintraub in City Unique. It's all red velvet and just this beautiful, beautiful environment. It's like this... It's it's an amazing thing. I mean, uh, the Wiggle Room is on Saint-Laurent in Plateau Montréal. It's across the street from Schwartz's. Those of you who've gone to the great Jewish deli 
Smoked Meat Capital Place. It's across the street from uh, from Schwartz's. It's an absolutely amazing place. They have lots of live shows, lots of comedians, lots of burlesque. Uh, you can buy tickets online. Um, so, yeah, without further ado, I give you the episode. Today we're going to be talking with anthropologist and all-around genius, wise woman, <laughs> as I was saying to the producer of the podcast, uh, Eric. Uh, Helga reminds me of Diotima from... Uh, Plato's Symposium, where Socrates says that he's learned everything that he knows from a witch named Diotima and describes all of that. Helga has just had a a very complicated, fascinating experience of life, given her a very interesting panoramic view. We uh, had her on the podcast once before, where we talked about, among other things, her PhD dissertation, which is where she talked about gardeners of Eden and talking about, and what's interesting talking to Helga is that she has this view of what we are as a species, which has a way of cutting through the dichotomies that you often find on environmental issues. So generally speaking, when you're talking about the human species, you have, on the one hand, you have people like Steven Pinker who think, we're absolutely awesome, you know, technology can solve everything. And then on the other hand, you have a certain kind of environmentalist who thinks that we are a kind of cancer on on the surface of the earth, which the best thing, you know, it's sort of like that movie 12 Monkeys where like the the guy, like the environmentalist like comes up with an epidemic to wipe out most of the human population. And this is seen as being an environmentalist act. Well, uh, Helga has this view of humanity as that we are the gardeners of Eden, that we have acted as a keystone species and we have increased the biodiversity and the complexity and the sort of robustness of ecosystems that we've been a part of and that we've done that for most of our history as a species and we can do that again which is a a wonderful kind of middle way between humans are evil and you know humans are awesome right so um i'm very looking forward to this conversation i'm sure you'll find it very interesting uh without further ado i give you professor helga ingeborg virich Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we are going to be talking again with Helga Ingeborg Weirich, an anthropologist and all around fascinating person. Um, welcome, Helga. Wow, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so, uh, so wonderful article that you wrote, right? Gaia's Problem Children. Mm-hmm. And so we both read The Wizard and the Prophet, so we're going to have a, mm-hmm. a lot of things to talk about today. And also, I'm definitely going to sneak in talk of that book, Team Human, because it really is, uh, this this guy is your your missing twin. It's unbelievable. But mm-hmm. anyway, so what you, do, you have a very fascinating take on what the roots of our environmental problems are and what the solutions are. Right now, one of the earliest guests we had on the Like Phil podcast 
was somebody uh, who very passionate environmentalist and her view of the solution is that basically we need to have you know a, a large dieback we need to have you know like maybe forced sterilizations or some big epidemic that kills off most of the human race and this is a troubling fantasy mm-hmm. among certain you know a certain kind of uh, environmentalist and i think it uh, you know, for very understandably turns off a lot of people, right? That mm-hmm. the solution is to to kill us off or the solution is to just seal off certain parts of the wilderness and just, you know, have humans not go there and let it grow wild. And this is the solution. You have a kind of a, a middle way between... Uh, just complete denialism and let's just keep, you know, doing whatever we want and let's kill humans off <laughs> or something. So yeah. can, can you just sort of tell our listeners what your, your vision of a sustainable future looks like? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with how we understand ourselves as a species, you know, and I think that the, the, both the denialism and the um, you know kill most of us off approach, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and the uh, the final uh, thing that has been recommended actually by E.O. Wilson, which is to you know kind of cordon off what is it a third or a half of the planet to just let nature take take over there, mm-hmm. right? And like all of these approaches assume that first of all human beings are damaging to the environment one mm-hmm. you know and uh, t- undoubtedly today that that is certainly true but it hasn't been uh through most of our existence on this planet in in my view um they also these these ideas also make the assumption that overpopulation is the main problem uh that we're facing and that this is interminable in other words somehow or other um, it's too late to do anything except kill most of us off. Mm-hmm. That, that solution assumes that on, we can only manage to um, uh, survive and have the planet's ecosystems survive by um, remaining under some arbitrary carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that we've already exceeded that. And there's a, a lot of people who've made their whole careers um, uh, trying to show not only how we have done that, you know, exceeded the carrying capacity, but, but how dangerous this is and, and how, you know, uh, intractable it is. And uh, the only way we can go back to some kind of ecological balance on the planet and save the ecosystem (laughs) and ourselves is by reducing our numbers. Yeah. The, the right sort on. of the Voitians, right? That, uh, yep. Yep. that yep. we have to kind of the mm-hmm. population bomb. We have to do something mm-hmm. about that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, I I've been thinking about this since I was in my t- early twenties. I I got to the university. Um, I was going to be in fine art. I took one anthropology <laughs> course and one uh, biology course from a, a a guy doing cladistics at his early computer. 
uh, analysis of um, animal characteristics to put them into an evolutionary schemata. Anyway, it was very, and both of those just changed my life because I suddenly saw that that's where my interests were. I was interested in nature, in animals, and in our species as an evolutionary phenomena. And, you know, I really, I like art. My father was an artist. <laughs> I have a long <laughs> line of artists in my family. But, and, and it's important, and I think art is, is, is a fundamental uh, thing about humans that is fascinating. And perhaps about more than humans, uh, other creatures appreciate the beauty of nature, or the beauty of sunsets, the, you know, the, just the beauty of life. It's a life-affirming thing to be artistic, in a sense, because mm-hmm. you recreate, you, in play, you recreate the things that give you joy. Anyway, so I, I have always felt, and I still feel today, in spite of all of the issues, that um, the human species is like a love poem to this planet. The human species is the ultimate consciousness of this planet, and it it's it's our ev- evolutionary role. I know that sounds really romanticized. Oh, not <laughs> to me, that. not to me. I mean, one of the foundational myths of yeah. my but culture it, is that we were made in the image of God. And exactly. we were supposed to be the gardeners of Eden. Yes, exactly. And you see, the thing is that that I went through a lot of uh, ups and downs to get to this point. At one point, um, you know, I read the population bomb. <laughs> I read. I, was, I just got married, you know, like, and you you read something like that, and I discussed it with my first husband, uh, Bernd Escher, who was studying to be a doctor. And we decided that we probably shouldn't have children. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we were very serious. I could, you know, I cried and all this. And the, the thing is that then I also had read um, The Limits to Growth. You know, mm-hmm. that, that came out in about 72 or 3 or something, or maybe a year earlier. I don't know. I got hold of it and I read that. And I, I, I started to, you know, sort of just keep track of all of the the negative aspects of our impact on the planet, the problems that people could foresee, and this was even in the seventies, right? And I, I I wanted to understand more about human ecology. I, you know, I got interested in archaeology. I got interested in in our evolutionary trajectory as a species. I had. I, I was very fortunate. I, at the University of Toronto at that time, we had a, a, a four-field department. We had people doing archaeology. We had people doing uh, physical anthropology, you know, epidemiology, demography. And um, we had people doing primatology. You know, one of my professors who actually wound up on my thesis committee was Francis Burton, who did uh a lot of field work on Barbary apes, in other words, the the macaque species that lives on the tip of Gibraltar, mm-hmm. and and you know, and I I couldn't figure out whether I should be a primatologist or an archaeologist or a physical anthropologist uh, studying you know uh, fossilized human remains. I wanted to do it all, <laughs> and then you know, and I had lots of support. I got scholarships and stuff, and and then. Um, I took a, a course with a new professor who had just arrived called Richard B. Lee. 
And he had uh, co-authored a book with um, Irvin DeVore called Man the Hunter. And it was a report on the first hunter-gatherer conference that had ever been held. And it um, was sponsored by Warner, Warner Gren. And it, uh, it also got me very excited because in the course of that, that um, collection of, of papers that had been given, uh, it became clear to me that the viewpoint that, that I had heard that many people had expressed about our progress in human terms, you know, the, even the way that many things were expressed in archaeology, you know, the texts by Child and Clark and others, implied that um, we had come out of a kind of violent darkness where many people starved and life was very, very hard into this bright sunshine of civilization where things were getting better and better and better, right? And and now I looked at this book and and I thought, well, so it wasn't so bad, you know, and that changed my life again. And so then I started looking at um, the idea that human beings had actually evolved to live quite well, which made sense. I mean, no species on the planet develops its ecological niche in order to be hungry, starving, and miserable, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, quite the opposite. That's right, the whole too. point of having a niche, right? Yeah. You know, vultures specialize in scavenging and and lions in, in group hunting and living on the savanna. And, and they all reproduce well and, and their species is adapted to that, meaning that they're a going concern. They're doing fine until, of course, you know, the climate change or whatever. But, but still, they adapt to a niche because it's better. Okay, mm-hmm. so... So I was thinking about this, and I was looking at specifically fire ecology. You know, how um, uh, the use of of, uh, sort of preventative small burns could prevent really serious wildfires, and how um, the Native people in North America had used this means to actually prevent really serious wildfires and also to manage their ecosystem in such a way that it was more productive and that they were keeping, you know, many animals in their environment, like bison and moose and elk and deer, in by producing a mosaic pattern of ecology. Some areas in secondary growth, other areas as open open meadows and plains. And and so in each succession community in this mosaic you had a different mix of animal species and so you had a lot more variety and diversity and when you have uh, that going on you also have uh, some areas left as old growth and forests that are in various stages of growth and if you have enough forest cover or permanent vegetation what happens is the the stream beds are more and the river beds are more stable. The water absorbs into the soils. It goes down to the um, uh, water table. It is purified as it travels through the down the slopes into rivers and streams and lakes. And so it it stabilizes everything by slowing down. So you don't have floods every time that it rains or the snow melts. You mm-hmm. know. And, and so I, I read all this uh, in a number of books, and I went to my department uh, 
uh, chair, and also to Richard Lee, who was the expert on hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari. And I told him about this. I wrote a paper on it. And I said, this is what I want to do my thesis on, you know, because this is is the, the critical element, not just fire ecology, of course, but I didn't realize that at the time. But this is the critical element that helped us to evolve into humans because we became the managers, the gardeners of the environment. We play, played a, an ecological role that was critical especially as the as the you know tumultuous stuff was going on with the ice ages and the big droughts in africa and everything humans stabilized environments they maintained diversity they managed the system and that is their ecological niche yeah you you describe humans as being a hyper keystone species can you sort of just yes. explain what a keystone species is because i know that's well, not something everybody's familiar with yeah, well, there was a uh, there was a, a video made or film made uh, about the return of wolves to Yellowstone Park, and I think for many people that was the introduction to the concept, you know, because when the wolves re- were returned to Yellowstone Park, a number of things followed, because the elk and the other large animals, ungulates living there, were um, became afraid of the wolves. You know, they stopped moving around in, in big, slow herds in the river valleys and munching everything down there because they had eaten back all the vegetation all around the rivers because they were lazy. You know, they just <laughs> they had water to drink. They didn't go far. They were in big herds. They were overproduce, overproducing young. And, and they, they basically uh, were causing stream beds to erode and everything. But of course, people didn't hadn't aware, become aware of the fact that that might be due to the absence of a major predator, a keystone predator. When the wolves got reintroduced, right away they started hunting in the easy pickings in these river valleys, right? Mm-hmm. So the elk went, holy cow, we're in trouble now. And they, they went, started moving faster into uplands and in smaller herds. They stayed out of the river valleys where they were easy pickings, right? And they started moving in the way that they had before the wolves vanished. And and probably they got healthier too, because all the animals that were sick or injured were the ones that the wolves took first. Mm-hmm. Uh, the survival rate of calves was reduced, of course, which, it's, you know, we're a very empathetic species, so we find that rather sad. But what, what it meant was that their population explosion got braked, you know, mm-hmm. the brake put on that. And so what happened then was this, the... Um, the, the vegetation in the river valleys and around the around the springs and so on rebounded. The, the uh, sedges and, and water plants came back uh, that the moose and elk had, you know, munched down. The um, um, cattails and the, the grass all around the river valleys rebounded. And the, um, the wild flower plants were able to actually come back. The willows and the poplars and all the berry bushes that grow around these kinds of places came back and and started actually having berries on them so the you know the birds and the the insects started coming back and because the vegetation prevented flooding 
the stream bed stabilized and the beavers came back and the wow. beavers started building you know dams and lodges and cutting down some trees and creating big meadows and the various fish and amphibians came back and it just turned the whole ecosystem around mm-hmm. and you see the wolf was therefore obviously one of the keystone species there you know? yeah. Oh, it's amazing how it can transform a landscape. I got yeah. first talking to yeah. uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb about Lebanon, and he said that mm-hmm. uh, there used to be lions in Lebanon, you know, a mm-hmm. long time ago, mm-hmm. and the lions would eat off, you know, a lot of grazers and things like that, goats and various other things. And yeah. so that meant that the mountains were all like green and lush and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he said a lot of the parts of Lebanon that look more, you know, sort of the stereotype that that mm-hmm. North Americans have of the Middle East as being this deserty area. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the parts of Lebanon and Iraq and Iran that look that stereotypical or Israel that have that that deserty look, they look mm-hmm. that way because they got rid of the large predator predators. And basically all of these things like goats just ate the place you know, mm-hmm. so much that the mountains couldn't hold on to their topsoil because, you know, a good mm-hmm. a good rain would just wash everything away. That's right. right. That's it's, right. Uh, it, it's remarkable how easy it is to turn this stuff around. I, I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. seen, there's this wonderful, wonderful documentary. I mean, I just, I, I get, you know, teary-eyed every single time I watch it. It's called Hope in a Changing Climate. Mm-hmm. It's, you've seen that? Mm-hmm. It's with the the guy who's um, he's a, a soil ecologist, and he went to China, and he sort of helped them to rebuild some of their mountains and how like <laughs> yeah, yeah. and he made yeah. like the ring around the mountain at the top exactly. and at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just unbelievable! And suddenly, <laughs> they they have like fresh, clean drinking water all year Mm -hmm. round suddenly and all these species are coming back and they have like they have uh you know leopards are coming back to the Mm -hmm. mountain that people haven't seen in three generations and stuff like that like yeah i mean it's it's amazing how easy and and that's a perfect example because in those examples it's it's humans that messed it all up but then it's Mm -hmm. human ingenuity that fixes Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. like so yeah yeah, and so is he a wizard or a prophet? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's yeah, he's clearly a wizard, but he's yeah. not a wizard the way that we. He's not a Stephen Pinker wizard, so he's no. not. Uh, he, yeah, he's not a Norman Borlaug wizard. He's a he's the kind of wizard that actually um, arises out of the analysis of long term trends. You yeah. know the understanding, and that's actually what what I got out of reading the Wizard and the Prophet, because I I'll have to tell you it, this is this is so serendipitous in a way because that man you're talking about I can't remember his first name but it's L L U I I think it is his last name I'm, is I'm blanking on his name it's, it's weird American. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turns out that um, the gentleman who was an agronomist that I uh, worked with on a project when I was with a Green Revolution Institute in uh, the Sahel in Burkina Faso, Willem Stoop, he knows this man. 
Oh, really? Yeah. And he has done some work with him. There's there's another man called Norman Uphoff, who's at Cornell, that he's also worked with. And, And these three people, among others, are trying to develop systems of agronomic technique. As I, just, to I just looked it up. So it's uh, mm-hmm. Hope in a Changing Climate by John yeah. D. Leo, 2009. Yeah. Leo, yeah. yeah. And and the thing is that, that what they are trying to do is to develop systems that will actually intensify um, crop production, increasing yields, without adding all the chemicals and all the rest of it. And by managing um, topsoils and water tables, okay, and that's that is exactly what what we need to do in the future, and we can do it. Yeah, you know, it's it's not impossible. Now, you know, I what I find so interesting about this is that when you look at what I well, if you if you look at what I was just saying about how humans are manipulating ecosystems and managing them for diversity and stability and so on. If you look at that, it takes both. It takes wizards, as it were, to come in and say, well, we need to modify it by doing this one, mm-hmm. right? Who have these short-term magical solutions. And then we also need profits. In other words, people who do the long-term analysis and see the overall relationship between things that initially appear unrelated, like the amount of forest and the water table, mm-hmm. right? Because our view of causality is often has often been kind of mechanical and simplistic. We somehow assume the water table comes first and then the forest. It doesn't occur to us that the forest brings the water table, right? Mm-hmm. Now we know that these things are interconnected, right? And that takes a different kind of mentality than the person who goes, okay, we have a problem with flooding. What do we do, right? And, and, and the solution of, for flooding down the slope in the Middle East and in the Philippines and Bali and places like that was to build terraces, remember? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's enough. You know, these bund lines where you, you terrace an area with rock or brick or whatever it is you have to hold the water back and to make it descend more slowly. Mm-hmm. And we all that, in, and it's one of the most successful things that was done in West Africa, you know, to prevent uh, soil erosion and massive flooding. And it brought back um, uh, this, you know, kind of... Um, uh, water table restoration. And of course, one of the best ways of terracing is once you build up the soil at the end of the terrace before the drop, right? You put tr- young trees there and their, their massive root systems actually keep the water from racing downhill even better than a simple, you know, wall or something like that. And so when you, when you think about it, you know, the, t- the terrace is a wizard solution. <laughs> yeah, to reforest, to reforest it's a sustainable one, yeah. Yeah. It's, but, same, but yeah. It's, it's step one. But if you look at the relationship between water flow and water absorption into the soils and forest ecosystem persistence in a particular area, it's the presence of a forest area in the uplands or even in the downlands, doesn't really matter, that causes the the deep filtration downward of the water 
and actually raises the water table uh, substantially every time there's a rainfall. And this filters the water down gently into the streams. It prevents the flooding. It causes the water to be, you know, rather pure. Uh, yeah. It takes a lot of impurities out of it. And, and, and then you have the streams lasting all year again. You have, you know, just an incredible flourishing of all the vegetation all around there. And gradually the whole landscape is green again. And that's the, these are the principles, in a sense, that you get out of analysis of a whole system. Whereas yeah. the, terrace, the terrace idea or Norman Borlaug's idea of, of, of developing higher-yielding plants that would respond to chemical fertilizers, that's a wizard's idea. Mm. Well, we actually we saw that in a, a small way. I mean, obviously, if you there's many places in the world where it's far, far more dramatic than this. But in mm-hmm. the 1950s, Jean Drapeau, after he was elected mayor of Montreal, and mm-hmm. he was going to clean up all the corruption and all the stuff like that. And so he set about cleaning up a lot of corruption. And he did actually make a, a lot of really fantastic changes. I mean, the the cops were ridiculously corrupt, like just like not mm-hmm. even like openly corrupt. And there was organized mm-hmm. crime was running everything. But he was also, as is very often the case with these sort of puritanical uh, mm-hmm. reformers, you know, like Taliban types, he ended up uh, sort of clear-cutting the city figuratively and literally. So uh, he did these morality cuts on Mount Royal. And so basically at the time, the population density was really intense in Montreal. And uh, there was a housing, major, major housing shortage. So Mm -hmm. people lived in multi-generational house households. Like every house, people took in rumors. They'd have like you know, people living in their place. So young people who wanted to have sex, they basically, there was like only a few places that they could go. They they couldn't go to motels or hotels because you had to show a marriage license. You had to show that you were married and things like that. And so they would go to movie theaters and like fool around in movie theaters. Uh, and they would go, and the other place they would go is uh, when it was warm is they would go to the mountain and like fool around in the forest. And mm-hmm. apparently like... Uh, in you know July and August, going on the mountain, it was like a scene out of Emile Zola's like Germinal. It was like, uh, 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 like you'd hear like everywhere in the forest, people like fucking around. And so he said uh, they were going to set up big bright lights, and they were going to mm-hmm. have patrols going around to make sure that. And they, uh, he said, we're going to cut away the cover. So they basically clear-cut about 95% of the trees on the mountain. And it was only a a community group that got together in a hurry and had this, like, panicked, panic. That's the only reason any of the trees on the mountain were saved was because Mm -hmm. they... uh, But the following spring, they saw the, you know, what happened because of all of these clear-cutting the mountain. First of all, uh, there were flood floods mm. and mudslides that destroyed all sorts of mansions in Westmount and destroyed, <laughs> like, big houses in, like, Uchimau and Westmount. Uh, but also, and this, you know, still sort of breaks my heart, but um, all sorts of species were basically died off completely. They were eradicated. So 
all of the almost all the salamanders and um, snakes and frogs on the mountain and a lot of other like plant species were just mm-hmm. uh, dead, gone. Like, and oh, they they yeah. have they have not come back. There are absolutely no, no frogs or toads on the mountain anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. But eventually, uh, so when I was a kid going to the mountain, whenever it would rain, you would have this massive muddy like runoff that would come down and it would like block streets sometimes it would do all this stuff but in just in my lifetime i've watched the mountain has greened up and the trees have gotten large and there's all sorts of uh, there's much more vegetation on the mountain and so it holds mm-hmm. on to its water more mm-hmm. and so now even when there's a massive massive downpour the the mountain is for the most part able to absorb all of that water and then you mm-hmm. have streams that flow pretty much all summer long. Like they just, mm-hmm. there are always these pure, clean streams that are coming down from the mountain. So I, I, mm-hmm. I've seen what, um, you know, in a small way, I mean, it's not a, it's not even technically a mountain, but don't tell anybody else from Montreal that yeah. they get very angry. Uh, it's technically a hill, but, but it's, um, even in this, in this city, you know, I've seen with my own eyes like that, what you're talking about, how, the uh, if it's if we disrupt the vegetation, these things it has all these like horrible effects for us, right? Mm-hmm. Not even just for like all the species, which it did too, but yeah. it has all yeah. these like horrible effects on us, right? That we mm-hmm. we have to deal with later on, but we can fix it. You know, I mean, like yeah. that's exactly what's happening now. But yeah, and you know what's really interesting is that that is our species role. That is how our minds work. We want to fix it, you know? Mm-hmm. And we, we do this without even thinking about it. Why do you think people have plants in their houses? Why do you think they put flower beds and gardens and plant trees, you know, whenever they have a piece <laughs> of property? I mean, people, it, it's, it's, you know, even having pets, even having, oh, I, I, I don't know what that noise was, but anyway. Even, even <laughs> Sound having, effect. We did it on purpose. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, you know, bringing songbirds into the house and parakeets and things like that, the, you know, having pets, all of this is because I think, I think somehow or other it, it gives us happiness. It tickles our minds to be surrounded by living things mm-hmm. that, are, that are doing well. You know, I love I love E.O. Wilson's idea of biophilia. Like that, yes. you know, the first time I heard about that idea, I thought that that resonates with me so of much. Course. <laughs> yeah. Of course, and this is, you know, I think it's not necessarily everybody, and I don't think it was in an, in ter- terms of evolution. You know, like if if you think of hunter gatherers, there were there, there would be people in the year, you know. Uh, 99,000 <laughs> if you think back that far right before <laughs> yeah who would basically go oh god I can't stand all this bush <laughs> you know <laughs> and there are always people who didn't really care right but, but, but as long as you know at least some people like 30% or 50% or even more you know care to have had to have plants around them, to have healthy environments, to have animals, and to have birds singing, and to to see flowers. Like, why do we bring people flowers as a gift? Like, think about that. You know, 
<laughs> why? <laughs> why would we want to give each other the reproductive organs of plants? I mean, you know, really. And yet it's because we love these things. We we associate them with everything good because they make us feel good. And and I think Eel Wilson is brilliant in that he has these insights, you know, because he feels this. Yeah. All the great naturalists and biologists that I've ever met have had this sense of that somehow or other it's so important. It's so important. Yeah. I think that's why we have a discipline of, you know, botany <laughs> and, <laughs> and animal science and, you know, and, and biology. It's because people react positively to understanding these natural systems and the animals that live in them and the plants that live in them. That's actually, I think, why Darwin, if you read Darwin's book, I mean, the man was the epitome of biophilia. He yeah. loved nature. He yeah, was it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. He's just like, right? his boy, yeah. boyish wonder is it's just know. palpable, like on every yeah. page. Yeah. Yeah. And his I drawings, his drawings, was, just his little drawings of like, of, of birds and squirrels and stuff like that. It's he yeah. draws not just accurately, but there's there's love in that. Like Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'll tell you something. There's love in the cave paintings where you have bison and buffalo and elk and deer and lions and everything depicted in birds. There's love in the little depictions that I brought back from the Kalahari where, where little kids were drawing um you know animals on the on the uh, ostrich egg shells that people that the women were carrying water in the the kids were also drawing um astronomical things they were drawing constellations you know because they had to learn their star systems this astronomy cosmology all of this it's it's not exactly biophilia but what it is is this human thirst to understand and glory in the natural world and our cosmos and our place in it Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I say I think humans are like, like a like a love poem, of the planet, mm-hmm. and I think we have to honor that. We have to say, okay, we're not going to look at humans and say these are destructive elements. We're like a cancer. I've heard all these things. We're plague. No, no, I don't. I don't. I really don't think that. And yeah. I think if you start from that premise, you also can start from other negative premises you can you can start with the idea that that there are some humans who are better than others you know there are some humans that are worth keeping and others are not there's the aryan idea that you know this master raised all this kind of stuff and all of these ideas what they do is they they shut off your empathy and love for not only other people but nature you know mm-hmm. you begin to want to control everything yeah, okay. well, there's uh, that that book uh, from your long lost twin, Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human. Yeah. He has the, the whole book is written in aphorisms, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mm-hmm. it's a very short book, and but he he says you know human beings are not the problem. Human beings mm-hmm. are the solution, mm-hmm. and he he says that there's this whole. Um, I mean, it's funny because he's somebody who was one of the original techies. He was like the nerd's nerd. And he like mm-hmm. uh, was a huge booster of the whole, uh, you know, internet, computer revolution, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. he knows all the founders of all of the the yeah. big tech giants and stuff like that. He knows them personally. He knows. And he said, you know, a lot of these people, they 
they come out of this, you know, to put it in Charles C. Mann terms, they, they come out of this, this Voidian tradition and they basically mm-hmm. see human beings as something that needs to be transcended, you know, almost like yeah. if you think about it in, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where Zarathustra says, you know, man is a thing to be overcome. And like they, yeah. they want to, and he said this whole desire of Elon Musk to take off to Mars or Peter Thiel mm-hmm. to sort of upload himself onto like the internet and all stuff. There's this cyber. like, yeah. yeah, like it's just this desire to, totally transcend humanity and seeing humanity as constantly a problem. And so loving mm-hmm. artificial intelligence and loving computers far more than people, right? Mm. Because people are faulty and messy and and they have all these like things, you know, sort of oozing yeah, out of them. And like, <laughs> they yeah. always snuck off to have sex. How dreadful. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, just seeing it, and I mean, Douglas Rushkoff takes it, uh, not mm-hmm. in his book, but in his um, in his podcast, which is also called called Team Human. He takes it a little little far at times, but I think he's, I think he's basically right in the outline that mm-hmm. they're um, they're seeing humanity as basically they ultimately don't have a very different attitude than the environmentalists that I was talking about, that yeah. humans should be killed off and we'll mm-hmm. be much better. We'll be much better off when we have um, AI driving mm-hmm. our cars and teaching our children mm-hmm. and counseling us and mm-hmm. that these will be more reliable. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, sigh is exactly the appropriate response. I mean, mm-hmm. like what else, uh, yeah, I mean, we we ultimately, I'm I'm quite taken by the idea. I, I I recognize that it hasn't been fully proven yet, but it definitely explains a lot of the the problems. the The idea that you find in um, uh, Johann Hari's book, Lost Connections, mm-hmm. and and others that the epidemic of depression and anxiety that we're seeing mm-hmm. in our society is a function of the fact that we're we really miss being connected to each other, to mm-hmm. nature, to ourselves, that mm-hmm. all of these uh, these sort of artificial connections are just not, it, it's kind of like when you eat junk food, right? You just eat, keep eating it, but you never feel full. You know, you feel mm-hmm. kind of hungry an hour later because you haven't, you haven't gotten the nourishment that you mm-hmm. wanted. You know, it just sort yeah. of fills you. Yeah. I think I think too it gives you a different view of um this phenomena that that we've sometimes discussed and that that's the phenomena of, of tribalism, you know. Mm-hmm. And that divides us. It makes it makes a lot of people very unhappy and it doesn't solve any problems. Yeah. Well we, we are tribal by nature and I, I recognize that that's I recognize that that's been central to a lot of the violence in our mm-hmm. history and that mm-hmm. um, it always will be. But I also think we have a deep, deep need to to feel like we have a tribe, right? So mm-hmm. I, I guess the, the problem, and this is something uh, you know, Douglas Rushkoff points out a great deal in his book, Team Human. He says that mm-hmm. the problem with 
tribalism is not so much that we have a desire to be tribal. That that's fine. That's that's very human. The problem is is that the uh, the modern world, um, late capitalism, social media, various things like that, they've hijacked that desire and they've mm-hmm. pigeonholed us into tribes that basically are simulacra of tribes. They, they don't provide us with any of the emotional mm-hmm. um, needs like that we actually would get from tribes, right? Like I remember... Mm-hmm. For instance, here in Montreal, growing up in the southwest of Montreal, working class part of Montreal, there were definitely, you know, there were like some pretty hardcore old like communists and socialists who had a very, very tribal view of the world. Mm -hmm. And this, they were like, yeah, you know, fuck those people, the rich people in Westmount, they're screwing us. And they would often have like a very kind of conspiratorial view of the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was just, plain ugly in certain ways you know but the thing is is like their tribalism supported a real tribe they actually supported workers rights they set up community Mm -hmm. groups in verdun and point saint charles Mm -hmm. and and uh, Côte saint paul and stuff like that that supported real people with Mm -hmm. you know intangible ways so you could say okay they they created a kind of an us versus them view of the world and that is not ideal at mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. but it performed the functions of a human tribe what we have right mm-hmm. now is we have these tribes that are set up on twitter or facebook or instagram or various kind of social media sites and and i've seen this you know, personally in in my own life with people that i know where uh, i mean this one guy i'm thinking of in particular that i grew up with here in montreal and he's gotten really, really involved in kind of online progressive politics. And mm-hmm. he has gradually alienated, like, all of his real friends. <laughs> you know, like, like, his real friends that he knows face-to-face here in Montreal. He's alienated them. Uh, and he's sort of pledged his allegiance to this online progressive tribe. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean... Thing is, is if you rejected all your friends and family in like the '60s or the 1830s or the 1720s because mm-hmm. you were going to join like some religious cult, you know, we we might say that that was dysfunctional in various ways. But at least you got a tribe in the trade, right? Like people mm-hmm. that are physically there with you. You you ate yeah. with them. If you got sick, they would bring you soup. They would like they were there for you. They were your your tribe. They were your people now, right? So mm-hmm. he's basically alienated most of his family and friends, people that um, actually, when he was sick a few years ago, you know, went to the hospital to go visit with him. He's alienated those people, and he's returned it for a tribe that mm-hmm. does nothing for him. These people yeah. have never met him in person. They are not going to take care of him when he's sick. They're not going to, you know, it's this this horrible mm-hmm. kind of like, imaginary tribe right and like i I don't know if you've did you ever read that book um hillbilly elegy no i haven't it's uh it's it's so amazing it's uh it's uh jd vance i think it's Mm -hmm. jd vance uh hillbilly elegy it's really really amazing book but he makes this point sort of in passing He, he doesn't sort of dwell on it but mm-hmm. he talks about he's from like kind of like sort of uh very rednecky white trash kind of 
um, community. Like that's like his mom mm-hmm. was like a crackhead and a heroin addict and Ooh, opioid addict. And he, mm-hmm. but he, he grew up in this very kind of like, um, that's sort of like white, like poor white um, yeah. American kind of like people who live in the Appalachia and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how like back in the day, they their religion was provided an incredibly important unifying force mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. community. So this was like the you know one of the only institutions that provided. Um, everything from like social assistance to mm-hmm. it, it just it was really really important. And he said something happened in and this is something he's the only person I've heard ever talk about this. He said something happened in the 1980s where people started like getting their religion from the TV. They started oh, watching yeah. like televangelists, yeah. and oh, they started yeah. watching like you know like Jimmy Swagger and you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like they started watching like people on TV. And so they stopped going physically to a church. Mm-hmm. And he said all sorts of social problems have spun off from that. Because he I said, can. you know, the, the real benefit of the church wasn't the the religion. It was the other people. It was yes. like being together and having a tribe, having people that see you every Sunday. And if mm-hmm. you don't show up. They send people to go to your house to make sure you're okay. And mm-hmm. they like they bring you food when you're sick and they take mm-hmm. care of you and they love you and they care about you and they notice mm-hmm. you and they see you. And suddenly everybody was just getting their Jesus from the TV. And he mm-hmm. said that has had this like horrible. And so he, he talks about like one point in the book, he talks about reconnecting with his father who he uh, had not seen like, you know, for years and years and years. And his father had got religion. But he mm. became a Pentecostal, and the Pentecostals are super anti-worldly stuff. So they mm. don't—they're not—they like reject TV and other things mm-hmm. like that. So his father actually went to a physical church, mm-hmm. and he talks about like what a just seeing like what that meant to his father's life. Like mm. at one point, his father's car broke down, and so he uh, he came he had to get a ride to church because yeah. he couldn't drive to church and he was crying and he said, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get to work. I have to drive a long distance to get to work every day. They immediately did an offering and oh, put no. together enough money to get him a secondhand car so that he could get to work on Monday morning. He's like, yeah. that is something that a physical church can do that yes. no amount of like online community mm-hmm. of progressives or alt-right people or even moderates or you know whatever there's no like jimmy swagger like there's no tv or online thing that can replace that kind of real community yeah. right well you have the go fund to be things but it's a shadow of that ability of communities to pull together yeah. yeah no but even and, those GoFundMe things i mean they're some of them are are incredibly sweet but Mm-hmm. In my impression, it, my sense is that the ones that are really effective, most of them, not all, some of them are just like an incredibly good story that goes viral and, and people mm-hmm. give it money. But it seems to me that the vast majority of the ones that are successful, it's somebody tapping into a community that they're already a part of. 
That's that's probably true. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If like they're already our friends. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. Yeah. I mean, we mm-hmm. we have that. We have that desire. We have that mm-hmm. that kind of need to have real face to face community. But but how do you think? I mean, do you see things like social media as as part of the solution for our environmental problems and our global problems or basically something that's going to have to be scrapped? Oh, no, I think it, it, it can, it can help. Um, Going back to your discussion just now, what really got me about what you were saying was that you emphasized the really positive aspects of being part of a community, Mm -hmm. right? Now, if we interpose, if we take the word community and call it a tribe, we really see that there's been a confusion, I think. I think there has, between what is a community and what is a tribe. And tribalism, that term, has begun to be used for online kind of discussion communities that share views and all this kind of stuff, even though they don't know each other physically or personally. And one is a substitute for the other in many cases, just as the televangelists are a substitute for a physical church that actually binds a real live community of people together in a local area. People need connection. And you made that point very early on. Mm -hmm. We, We, that right okay well let me just add another thing then there is a negative aspect to this and you know what that is very well and that is that that when you have a community a group of people that you trust and who you trust or, or you know who are who are loyal to you who will step in and help you who will come together to to help each other that's one of the most important things that, that we as people, as, as a species, rely on. We're a cooperative species. We're an empathetic species. We're a compassionate, compassionate species. And in fact, it's that sense of community that is like the, the stepping stone for our love of nature, of the community of animals and plants that we're a part of. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. You know, we... we you know, you talked about what happened on Montreal when they, when, when the the trees were cut down and everything, and it was a loss of community, not just the trees, but all of the plants and animals together mm-hmm. that that hurt people. And some some people would only have reacted negatively once their house is full of mud. Right? <laughs> but, but most people who love to go walking in the woods it's not just teenagers making out it's it's a lot of people dog walkers and and just people who love nature just want to be out in the real world as they call it mm-hmm. you know that 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 the loss was felt right yeah and we we want we have this need for a human community of real people around us or family and friends who we can actually call on the phone and they'll really come over with, you know, fried chicken or something when we were sick. (laughs) But, but we also need a community of nature around us that is healthy. And that need is almost ephemeral in, in the sense that we don't, we don't realize how much we miss it until it's gone. Yeah. 
Well, right. that's, I mean, like when, when uh, Annalisa had that health scare recently and we were right. in the hospital, immediately we were just, you know, this this avalanche of love, you know, where people mm-hmm. just contacted us, like, by mm-hmm. email, right. by text, by everything. People showed up at our house and gave, like, our sons, you know, care packages and stuff like that, oh. like, with food and things like that. And, like, that's real community. I mean, that's, like, mm-hmm. that's real community. I mean, I... When the ice storm, the great ice storm mm-hmm. happened uh, here in Montreal, I remember, you know, I'll, I'll never forget this. It was profoundly moving was the um, the military was called in mm-hmm. because they were saying, like, you couldn't, you know, the power was out and stuff like that. And they were talking about how it had been quite a few days where there was no power. And they were talking about how the, the temperature was supposed to drop by about mm-hmm. like 15 degrees like mm-hmm. that night. And so they wanted to go around house to house and go like ring doorbells, knock on and make sure that, you know, old people like shut-ins and stuff like that, that they had blankets mm-hmm. and food and water and everything. So mm-hmm. they, they didn't have nearly enough uh, sort of people power to be able to do that. So they went on the radio and they said, um, we need volunteers to go house to house to check on like check on people. And so they said, if you want to participate in this, um, go to the closest high school gymnasium to where you mm-hmm. are right now. And mm-hmm. so I, I remember a bunch of my friends were like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go, man. Like, so we just, we just got dressed and we went, boom, we like rent right there. Mm-hmm. And by the time we got there, uh, there were just crowds of people mm-hmm. flooding to yeah. like the high school to volunteer, and I'll never forget the um, the soldier who was standing at the front, like sort of telling people like where to go. He just had mm-hmm. like tears streaming down his face. He was <laughs> so profoundly moved, like he could barely. He was like choked up. He could barely talk. Like he was, he could not, they had to turn people away. Every Mm -hmm. high school in the Montreal area had Mm -hmm. more than enough volunteers within half an hour. Yeah. Like, and so, and I thought like, this is, this is team human. This is us. This is like, this is how much we kick ass. Like, this is actually, you know, what, uh, and you know, when I read that Andrew Potter thing where he was saying how mm-hmm. we suck in Quebec. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of under, I, I sympathize with how he came to that conclusion. And I, I was very impressed by his heartfelt apology afterwards. But, you know, when, when he wrote that thing about how much, you know, we have no, like, we have no civil society in Quebec and we're all just like mm-hmm. selfish and we don't care about each other. I just thought, dude, like you were clearly not here for the ice storm. Cause like yeah. I saw mm-hmm. such an outpouring of, of love. Right. I mean, like people were so fantastic to each other, but um, yeah, that does seem to be that that's a kind of real tribe, a real community mm-hmm. that you can't, for the most part, you can't, get that from an online community of activists who are all sort of in agreement 
with you that Hillary Clinton sucks or Donald Trump sucks or Justin Trudeau sucks <laughs> or, you know, like SJWs yeah. suck or, you know, whatever patriarchy sucks. Like you're, you're not going to find that in one of those communities. They're not, there's not going to be people that are actually going to show up on your doorstep and mm-hmm. bring you a blanket and some food. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. But what do you well, think it can do? I mean, because you, you seem to be, you know, you're not like, as is usually the case with Helga, <laughs> you're you're not like ever completely for or against anything. <laughs> so so no, what, what do you see? Huh? <laughs> I'm not wishy-washy. <laughs> no, you're I'm not. Okay. But when it comes to like broad patterns, you never seem to be like totally for or against any broad human thing. So... Well, With social I, media, what do you think the limitations and the promise of it are? Well, actually, I, I think it would be wonderful if in some future world, every every human community was also tied to every other community. You know, that, that information flow could, you know, circle the globe like it does now between friends instantly. So we could all keep in touch, keep in touch you know, and if there's a, and you've, you've seen this, I mean, when, when the tsunamis hit, when, when, you know, immense flooding or, or anything happens, the, the, the hurricane hits uh, Haiti or whatever, the flood of people wanting to help is immense. And the more communication we have, the more we know when there are people in trouble. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you should have seen what it was like here in Edmonton, when uh, when Fort McMurray burned down, mm-hmm. incredible. What happened? Well, everybody turned out with you know blankets and food and uh, you know the, the all the high school auditoriums, uh, sorry, uh, gymnasiums were full of of people who were were uh, fleeing. You know they they were fleeing that horrible fire, mm-hmm. and. Uh, interestingly enough, here in Spruce Grove, the Syrian community got together and provided some of the very first help. Wow! You know, they got together and raised money and 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 you know, just found blankets and sleeping bags and all kinds of stuff. So you know, when when push comes to shove, Team Human gets gets going and does not fail. Yeah. And Just a more- random random footnote. I have a friend of mine who basically his whole business here in Montreal. I, I met him. We've had mutual friends for years, but we finally actually met up recently mm-hmm. and been hanging out. And his job, okay, I better not reveal too much information here, but like uh he he basically is uh like a computer kind of whiz and works mm-hmm. on like on hacking and on various kinds of online mm-hmm. manipulation campaigns and things like that. And he, he does work with CSIS with various uh, uh-huh. adver- advertising campaigns. And he also has a professorship, but mm-hmm. he was, um, he said that when that big fire happened, I don't know if you remember this, but there were like a number of uh, sites that came up and were basically like, laughing like they deserve this because of like the tar sands and because of like and these really horrible like mean things well Mm -hmm. he said they've actually like identified who created those facebook groups and a lot of those like Mm -hmm. accounts they were created by russian troll farms Mm -hmm. 
those were not created by Canadian environmentalists. And there's, there's, he said basically like in the same way that in the States, they were uh, setting up like tons of, um, uh, you know, like Black Lives Matter, like really kind mm-hmm. of crazy, like accounts were saying like, you know, kill the police and stuff like that. A lot of the Blue Lives Matter sites were set up by Russian troll farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, anything that uh, promoted the the divisive kind of tribalism, mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. behind that. Like this uh, the yeah. book that I, I just read, it came out like about two weeks ago. It's a fantastic book uh, by uh, John P. Carlin, and it's called Dawn of the Code Wars. And he talks mm-hmm. about... Um, what the you know what the specifics of the the groups that they set up and they basically set up any group that would divide a country that was getting in their way so in mm-hmm. canada they set up like quebec bashing groups that mm-hmm. were obsessed like they that, like francophone groups that were obsessed mm-hmm. with like you know they're always making fun of us they're disrespecting us uh, mm. And it was, it turns out when they looked into it, it wasn't a real Quebec-based IP. It was like mm-hmm. some something in St. Petersburg. And then they set up a bunch of uh, kind of things in Alberta about how much we hate Canada and how much they disrespect us so much. And then like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just incredible. Like they would create um, things on both sides and then share mm-hmm. each other's stuff as examples of how much uh, they hate us, right? Like, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I was reading through the book, and they actually list um, lots of the fake sites. Yeah. And so I did, like, you know, Facebook has, like, a searchable timeline now, right? So I was mm-hmm. doing searches to see who of my Facebook friends shared um, the most kind of mm-hmm. Russian-created stuff. It's amazing. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to say it on the air. I'll tell you privately. But, like, it's... It, <laughs> Put it this way, Helga. It's exactly who you think it is right now in your mind. Like, yeah. exactly who you think it is. It's the people who are very something. <laughs> Anything, okay. right? Like, yeah, very anti-religion, very pro-religion, very anti, you know, Hillary, very pro-Hillary, very anti, like, whatever. Like, In other words, somebody who will cause divisiveness. Yes. They, their, their game plan was their number one game plan was to cause divisiveness. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting Trump to win was definitely mm-hmm. their preference, but their biggest preference was to get people to lose faith in each other. Yeah. and To in lose democracy. faith in, in democracy, but to lose faith in each other, to be, so they would, uh, they would support, for instance, um, like a Texas secessionist, site mm. right they would support an alberta secessionist mm-hmm. site they uh th- you know this has not been covered in the media at all but like they had a whole bunch of lgbtq sites they had oh, like geez. like basically anybody who wants to divide yeah. the electorate divide the community into a smaller sliver they were mm. all in that shit they were like all about mm-hmm. that right so and that's that's what uh and it, it's amazing, like, you know, mm-hmm. like the Carlin says, he goes, you know, on the one hand, um, it's 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 messed up that they were doing these things to divide us. But on the other hand, 
like we should take a really good look in the mirror. Like, why is it so easy to divide us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, I think I think what you're you're making a really good point, and that is that online communication of this kind has made us more vulnerable. We have some vulnerabilities, and we have to know what those are. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess you know part of it is we just have to be we have to get more comfortable with um, with having spirited disagreement with people mm-hmm. while at the same time keeping your eye on the ball, like mm-hmm. remembering, okay, do I know this person in real life? Do I know this person is like a decent person for real? Uh, well, keep that in mind. So if there's somebody mm-hmm. who's, um, who's an unknown quantity and mm-hmm. is not necessarily, you know, um, a real person or not necessarily a member of my tribe, then I need to sort of take what they say, good and bad, right, with um, with a grain of salt. And that's mm-hmm. that's a kind of, I guess, a sort of, I guess, a mm-hmm. an online maturity that we all have to uh, yeah. get, we have to get to there <laughs> quickly. <Yeah. laughs> so. Well, yes, and and that's that's a good point because if if you look at any discussion where there's he, uh, heated comments going back and forth, you have to start to be suspicious of the people who are always contra the compromise, mm-hmm. contra, contra, and who are exacerbating the divisions, yeah. and who come ag- come out, uh, you know, negatively. Um, and even even what happened recently, I, I don't know if you want to discuss this online, but the. The, the the whole incident that happened in Washington with the um, the, the Catholic boys' school. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And and that is really really unfortunate. But it has aspects of a manufactured divisiveness. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean, well, already CNN said amazing. that the the account that first made it go viral uh, mm-hmm. was a fake account they can't they still cannot figure out who set it up yeah i mean that's that's weird i mean like that's right and i think about it like you know like my the 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 kid that was on all the pictures like he's Mm -hmm. he's my my son my oldest is 16 years old like Mm -hmm. i can't imagine i i can't imagine like what his family like what his father and mother mm-hmm. like what they he's a that's a minor <laughs> like that's a kid <laughs> and no. all these people mm-hmm. like you know i was amazed reza aslan i mm-hmm. used to have so much respect for him like i really thought like on the the whole kind of like religion debate i thought he was really kind of a, a voice of reason and compassion and mm-hmm. he was a very reasonable person and i used to have a, a real i couldn't stand sam harris and like i mean now i actually like sam harris quite a bit but like but he's changed he's like all meditating yeah. now and he's cool but like uh, but the reza aslan i remember th- i remember having so much respect for him and just thinking of him as like an adult in the room like one of like the mm-hmm. people that you know is even if you disagree with them that this is basically like a decent thinking human being and for him to immediately like post like about a 16 year old like have you ever seen a more punchable face like oh dear what i mean i know know. it was just weird i mean like why would you say that about 
a kid. Well, I mean, you might not have known a how kid, old you know, was. like, mm-hmm. like I'm probably, you know, I mean, this is just sort of a random example, but people's views, political views evolve over time and they change. Mm-hmm. I mean, like when I was, I mean, not when I was 16, but when I was 12, 13, 14, I was a, you know, a Pentecostal Christian. <laughs> I went to her and I, my views on, on abortion uh, were, I was like pretty hardcore, like, I guess what you would call pro-life. I mean, that in mm-hmm. itself is a confusing term, but like mm-hmm. I, I was very, I was a very, in many ways, kind of a right-wing Christian and I was very pro-life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, at that point, I was so young. I mean, I hadn't had a friend who who got pregnant in a horrible circumstance yet, and I had to like mm-hmm. take her to like the clinic. I I hadn't had mm-hmm. that I experience. Know, I didn't know. I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. Like you, these <laughs> these guys that are there, they're there because they've been brought up in probably mm-hmm. very very loving homes, you know. But mm-hmm. they've been brought up in a certain kind of religious environment, which Mm-hmm. probably brings them, you know, like we were talking about, it's a tribe, right? Probably yeah. brings them a great yeah. deal of joy and community and, and good things. But it also probably gives them a pretty blinkered view of the world. Mm-hmm. So when I see them there with their kind of pro-life slogans and their MAGA hats, I just think, oh, it's not cute. I mean, like, <laughs> like, like yeah. they, yeah. they, they don't know. They're probably going to turn out fine, you know. But yep. they they don't know That's what the great. they don't know what they're talking about. It, it's it's highly unlikely that a sixteen year old guy mm-hmm. knows what he's talking about on those issues at mm-hmm. that age. So to say that this is the face of like the white patriarchy, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I this is a punchable face, like you mm-hmm. are, you know, something's wrong. Wait, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not inclined to to love people in MAGA hats or no. people that are have pro life slogans or went to, or go to private well, that's schools. A tribe too, isn't it? The what? That's a tribe too, isn't it? It is, and it's a tribe yeah. that is probably sort of 95 percent great. You know, like yeah. for them, right? And for mm-hmm. the people in that tribe, it's probably a real tribe that that take they take care of each other and they probably mm-hmm. do a lot of great things. I mean the Catholic Church is um in the United States, not everywhere, but the Catholic Church in the United States is really really big on social justice and stuff like that and taking care of each mm-hmm. other. So mm-hmm. it's um you know, I'm sure the values that they're learning uh are you know, for the most part great. You know, mm-hmm. and um you know the, the stuff that is maybe not great, they'll get over most of it by the time they're twenty five. But well, life will teach them. Yeah, life, life will teach them. <laughs> <laughs> or their their like female friends or girlfriends or mm-hmm. sisters. Or, they'll or, have they'll have some someone who's dear to them. Yeah, uh, a woman, a young woman who may be dear to them, maybe even their own daughter, come to them in tears because she's been raped. Oh, and it'll happen far before that. And it'll then, happen far before uh, that. And then there'll there'll be an issue about whether such a child should ever be born. Mm-hmm. And and you know that that is where I think a lot of us women draw the line. We say no because we're not incubators. We have feelings, <laughs> you know. And everybody loves to pick on Scott Adams for this position, but I actually think. 
I mostly love to hate him, but um, mm-hmm. on on the on the abortion issue, I mm-hmm. actually think he is so unbelievably right on. <laughs> like Scott Adams, his position is that um, men just simply do not have enough skin in that game, and mm-hmm. so uh, men should basically just completely absent themselves from that debate. They should let <laughs> women decide. Uh, mm-hmm. what they want to do on that issue. And then they should mm-hmm. basically just get behind whatever the majority of women decide yeah, is, well, is to be done. <laughs> he's like, we should, he's like, I should not, my opinion on that subject is not important. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough one because I mean, here's mm-hmm. another thing. We're a very social cooperative species. And one of the things that probably was vital during most of our evolutionary period was that we would just about die to save a child, you know, any one of us uh, as an adult. And the older we get, the more susceptible we are to this. We see a new baby and our hearts just open up, you know. Really? But infanticide was so common. I know. And yet why? Why do you suppose that is? Well, for different reasons. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. infanticide was... Um, I mean, there were lots of reasons for it. Sometimes it would be because uh, if if food was scarce or there was a difficulty, you'd basically sort of choose like the the older mm-hmm. kids and you know get rid of the younger ones. <laughs> like, yeah, I think most of the time, from what I've heard, um, it's not something that happened in prehistoric times a lot. I don't think hunter gatherers generally committed infanticide, and I say that quite honestly. And it's not that I'm romanticizing them. It's because I asked the hunter-gatherers that I was living with about this. And they were shocked at the idea that, for instance, if you had twins, you would you would choose one and kill the other, for instance. I asked them about that because it's, uh, it's something that I'd heard. Uh, I asked about, uh, you know, was it ever permitted? And uh, people said, well... You know, if 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 the if if it was a child produced from the rape of a woman by someone she detested, uh, it was understandable and it was her business. Hmm. And you know, it's one of these things. But but I also I also never saw any evidence of it. There was a there was a a child. Oh well, he was a, an adult man when I met him, but he was born. Uh, and something happened to him during the birth or in his first year of life, and so he was paralyzed from the waist down. Wow. Did I ever tell you about that? No. He was a bookman guy, you know? And and when I met him, he was in his 40s. He was carrying his legs around in a sort of a, a sort of enlarged loincloth, walking on his hands. His arms were very well developed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they'd have to be, and, yeah. and he was a happy guy, and he was a very good storyteller, and uh, and he he lived, you know, out in the Kalahari with bands of hunter gatherers. Like he was just one of the one of the people, right? He was married. He had, I think, two children at the time, and I think his wife was. So his legs didn't work, but his junk worked. Oh yes, I guess that. I I, I, you know, I didn't inquire into these matters, but I but, would have yeah, inquired I, immediately because I'm a dude. Yeah. So yeah, I think his legs were 
paralyzed without yes it was whatever happened okay, <laughs> okay. in any event uh he was a an acknowledged member of the community he had not learned to hunt because he said that would have been foolish yeah <laughs> But he did run trap lines, snare lines, and he was quite diligent about that. And And he was mainly beloved and valued because he was such a fantastic storyteller. Mm-hmm. You know? There's, um, there's a, a wonderful yeah. woman here in Montreal who studies... Uh, she's studied the way in which various kinds of primates and monkeys and stuff like that, the way they deal with disability. Mm-hmm. And she's she's studied this... Um, there's a community of, I think it's Japanese macaques, who, mm-hmm. for one reason or another, I, I'm still not sure what the reason is, but there's some sort of toxin in their environment, which has caused mm-hmm. uh, this particular colony of macaques to be... Uh, a lot of them are really deformed, like with born, like with with out legs or without like, you know, a lot of seriously deformed. Um, And so she studied like the way that they deal with, uh, with disability. And it's Mm -hmm. absolutely amazing. They don't just like, you know, drown them or (laughs) they completely kind of incorporate them into the community and they find ways Mm -hmm. to, to sort of wait for them and help them and help them to feed Mm -hmm. and, and help them to like, and a lot of them, even though they're disabled, they they live completely full lives. They even mm-hmm. kind of mate and they become parents. And they yeah. get lots of help from other members of the community to help them with their mm-hmm. kids and stuff like that. And she sort of has has gone and studied them. And, you know, she was telling Annalisa and I about this, like, at a dinner party. And she's just, like, absolutely mindless. You keep thinking, like, okay, there's got to be a limit where they're going to just decide this is not viable anymore. But mm-hmm. nothing seems to be the limit, which is sort of the the message that I get from, like, a lot of your work, which is, like, we can support huge populations. We don't need to die back. We don't need to kill off the weak ones. We don't need to, like, kill off. We just mm-hmm. have to become... Well, just embrace our nature, which is to be mm-hmm. phenomenally cooperative and very good at helping each other. And helping the helping nature. Yeah. yeah. Know, being supportive of the of of the planet. And I think that that's it's so interesting you bring this up about the macaques. Because, you know, what is love? You know, what what is it that that happens when when we interact with another being? That is injured. If you go on YouTube, you will see an immense number of of uh, videos about people who rescue, you know, desperately ill or abandoned dogs or cats, or who rescue moose out of lakes that they've fallen through the ice in, <laughs> you know, and all this kind of stuff. People will practically die in fact some do die to save dogs that have fallen into rivers mm-hmm. i mean it was, you know where does this come from and it it's not something that we see in a lot of other animals at all um we do see it among animals that have been raised together like a, a dog will save kittens or a cat will save baby rabbits or something like that if you know she's familiar with them and they're all part of the the sort of household family 
Um, but but what's what's surprising to me is that um, there is an element in us or in our society that wants to deny that. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I'm curious about. I don't know quite where that's coming from. I wrote a little um, blog piece about that. It was called When the Sacred Circle is Broken. I don't know if you ever read that. I, I think, you know, I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about, and I know exactly where mm-hmm. you're going. And I think mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm fascinated by people like that because I think there's some... There's some of them who, um, they're they're lying. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what their reasons are, but they're they're lying. They don't actually believe what they're saying. But there's some people that do believe it, and the people who do believe it, I think what they are is they are basically people who are to some extent morally co- colorblind. Like mm. so, I mean, this is why. <laughs> I, I tease I tease Aaron Haspel about this, but like I'm like, dude, you're like a nonviolent sociopath. <laughs> like like I, think, I think I think it's it's because I'm I'm partially colorblind, right? There's a lot of colors that I don't see. But I mm-hmm. but when I talk to lots of the other humans, um they tell me that they see all these colors. And so my mm-hmm. I deduce that those colors exist, it's just that I can't see them. But I think mm-hmm. there is there's a small percentage of people who, for one reason or another, they just they don't feel that sense of powerful empathy and connection to other people, and mm-hmm. uh, they they behave like decent people because they've been socially sort of mm-hmm. you know conditioned to do so. It's not like they're like you know chopping people up and eating them. Like they're mm-hmm. they are screwing people over. They they're decent law abiding nice citizens. But they mm-hmm. are so, uh, just by basically cultural conditioning, by social conditioning, like they, they were raised mm-hmm. right. They don't yeah. feel emotionally any kind of connection to that stuff. So when people talk about that, you know, when people like you talk about, you know, well, pretty much almost anything Helga says, uh, they just think, oh, fuck off, you hippie bullshit. Like, they just think you're you're making it up. You know, like, they, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. it's like if you're hanging around with a bunch of people and, like, you know, they're all like tripping on shrooms and they're seeing all this like cool shit and you're not, and you're like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, you're just, you're just tripping. You're not, it's not real. Right. So it's, <laughs> uh, I think the people who say that they don't feel that kind of like powerful connection where you want to save a moose or save like a kid, or I think mm-hmm. it's often it's because they don't feel that. Yeah. And, so they, they don't understand it. They yeah. don't understand why anybody else does. Like they just but they that a lot of people are silly and do. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, there, there's this wonderful, wonderful aphorism in um, Nietzsche's. Uh, it's in the Joyful Wisdom. I think it's um, aphorism number three. I think, and mm-hmm. it's called uh, "Noble in Common," and he. he <laughs> it's like an absolutely hilarious aphorism if you read it like correctly Mm -hmm. and he he talks about how people who are really cynical and selfish Mm -hmm. in their heart of hearts they think that everybody else is like them and Mm -hmm. so when they talk to somebody who's noble they think Mm -hmm. either you're lying or you're an idiot like you're a sucker 
right? Like, mm-hmm. and but mm-hmm. he says it's exactly the opposite on the other end. He goes, people who are really noble by nature, they they're just as stupid as the cynical people. They <laughs> people who are really noble, they assume that everybody else is basically like them, and that if you're if if you're not like them, it's because you're denying your true nature, or mm-hmm. uh, there's something wrong with you. You've got like mental illness, or like you're, you know, mm-hmm. there's you're broken in some way. Yeah. Neither of them are willing to entertain the possibility that there might be people who are have a motivational structure which is radically different than ours than theirs, mm-hmm. right? Like so, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. And he said like they just they completely misunderstand each other habitually Mm -hmm. right like and that that's what i that's why i'm i'm very fascinated by like extremely cynical people and extremely um benevolent people because Mm -hmm. when you when you talk to them when they're like drunk or high and they're like they're really like telling you exactly what they think you know like they're not like not Mm -hmm. holding back nothing nietzsche is completely right (laughs) they totally totally think that everybody else is basically like if you talk about, like to a hardcore hippie like I don't know maybe Helga Ingeborg Byrich like if you talk about like so like a really kind of kind of sort of hippie type person they genuinely think everybody else if they would just wake up is like them and if you well, talk cynic- to like a really cynical person they think everybody mm-hmm. else is like them yeah well the cynical person I think feels that when you're when you're acting sympathetic or or trying to save a kitten or something that you're just virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is oh, almost no, no, no. You're, you're virtue signaling, or you're stupid. Yeah, you're just a sucker. You're spending you're like, time on something that's useless. I know, I know, and I, I can't. <sighs> but you know what? What's really interesting about this, if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, is that perhaps this is the journey we're on. You know, like would, for instance, um, uh, an evolutionary process suddenly stop and the whole species is already all sympathetic and cooperative? No, it it, it just needs a certain number, a sort of ma- ma- uh, maximum number or a, a moderate number, depending on the circumstances of individuals to be cooperative and sympathetic and empathetic and courageous and noble and have integrity and actually care, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need everybody to. So most populations of humans, well, the whole species as such, probably have never actually been 100% nice, kind, noble people, right? Mm -hmm. And because it's not necessary. All you need is the majority in in most communities to be caring to be the people who immediately get a pot of onion soup and rush to the home of a person mm. who's sick alone, right? You only need a certain number to be like that for the whole community to survive on it. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't even want the whole community to be like that, right? I yeah. mean, like, I think, you know, one of the things that I really love about uh, Douglas Rushkoff's book, Team Human, is that he specifically says, like, you know, we, I mean, his... Okay, I'm sort of pulling the rabbit out of the hat, but the last aphorism in his book is go find the others. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it took me until the second time reading his book to realize he doesn't mean go find the other like minded, cool people. 
That's not what he means. <laughs> he mm -hmm. means go find the others, like the people mm -hmm. that don't agree with you, the people who go find um, the the people who totally disagree with you and mm -hmm. see the humanity in them. You know, see, well, as a Christian, I would say, you know, see God in them, like mm -hmm. see the, like, see Jesus in them, you know, see like the divinity in them. Right. So, and mm -hmm. it, it's, it's powerful. I mean, it, but so, but, but I wouldn't want to just be um, all cooperative because totally cooperative communities have often become very coercive and, mm -hmm. you know, group think and, and been really harsh on outliers and people that yeah. are different and stuff like that. So I, I like having, uh, I think part of the success of our species is that we have these these mm -hmm. outliers that are maybe not as susceptible mm -hmm. to the Kool Aid, you know, like yeah, they, yeah. and yeah. they're kind of like more individualists. And they, mm -hmm. um, and I also absolutely like that article that we both liked uh, in Kool Aid, which was making fun of this ridiculous APA. Uh, you know, the categorization of toxic masculinity. Like, like so mm -hmm. much of what they're talking about is toxic ma masculinity is, I mean, that's what Annalisa and I have taught our sons, that you're supposed to stick up for your friends. You're mm -hmm. supposed to, like, stick up mm -hmm. for your community. If somebody's picking on your friend or picking, you're supposed mm -hmm. to, like, stand up and, you know, do something. You know, I especially know. if you're like, you know, like they're, they're 15 and 16. They're like six, two and five eleven now they're big. <laughs> right. Which means like they're supposed yeah. to be because of the, by virtue of their strength and size, I expect them to stick up for other members of the tribe when mm -hmm. they are imperiled and, and including violence if need be. So, mm -hmm. and that's somehow been like, redefined as toxic masculinity what the fuck like that's yeah, not yeah. that's being like you know that's being um well a man <laughs> you're supposed well, to care for people and take care of them yeah yeah well i think i don't know if if i understood you correctly just now but let me just say this my understanding of that whole toxic masculinity issue uh that was featured in the Gillette ad was to say that um, what is toxic behavior in a person, whether it's a man or a woman actually is to be uh, a bully ha doing harm. Yeah. No, no, I wasn't talking about the Gillette ad. I'm talking about the oh. APA, the Gillette oh, right, ad, right, okay. the Gillette ad is, you know, I have the no problem with that. Um, right. Yeah. The Gillette ad okay. is actually, is actually, I mean, I didn't see this at first, but the Gillette ad is <laughs> is actually a, a reification of male honor culture. Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, of course. there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. That's exactly yeah. what we've taught our boys. Yeah. No, okay. the okay. Um, I'm talking about the APA that basically has redefined all um, aggression and all like mm -hmm. male aggression and like as being yeah. Yeah. Uh, that heroic behavior that you need to defer to structures and basically you have to go and like tell the vice principal or tell the police or tell like <laughs> uh, some yeah. member of like big brother to solve right. all your problems. Mm -hmm. When in fact, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, 
what we taught our boys is like if somebody's hurting one of your friends, you, you don't go and tell. I mean, if if there's no way that you can deal with the problem, then you go to the police or to the 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 powers that be. But if you can do something yourself, even mm-hmm. if it means you're going to get hurt, I expect you to go and do it. Right. Like, and, and if you come home with like, uh, you know, two black eyes and bloody nose, I'll be so proud of you. <laughs> that that has yeah, been redefined no, I mean, as toxic masculinity. I know, but it isn't. You know, it yeah. isn't. What well, that's why I told Jonathan Haidt when behavior. he was when when he was on the Like Phil podcast. We were talking about this, and I said how uh, Tristan was getting uh, our sixteen-year-old. He was getting, um, and this was when he was when he was younger, but he was getting suspended from school for getting into like a pretty epic fight with like uh, a bunch of kids. And he um, basically was like, you know, th- that's just the way he was when he was younger. He would, when he would get angry, he would get really quiet and he just didn't say mm-hmm. anything. And uh, he would, he was just furious and he just uh, wouldn't say anything. So he was getting suspended. We got called in, but then we found out from some of the other parents and the uh, some of the other parents informed the administration of the school, and they they basically said like what was happening was these older kids. He was in I think like grade five at the time, like mm-hmm. you know, and these uh, the school they go to is uh, basically it's it's a very big school and it it has everything from kindergarten to grade eleven in the yeah. same building. It's a very big school. So there were these kids who were in. I think they were in like grade seven. Mm-hmm. And so these are like kids, boys that are like 12, 13, and they're, they, mm-hmm. they're all hormone pumped and horny and stuff like that. And they were playing this game where they would surround uh, like girls and like just like fill them up and stuff like that. And they mm-hmm. would like, they, I, I can't remember the exact the logic of it, the game was, but, and mm-hmm. it was very terrifying for some of these girls, like at recess and mm-hmm. lunch to be like, and so this happened to one of Tristan's friends. And so he jumped in and yep. these boys are like a head taller than him. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, now he's six two, but he was little then. He's a little guy. Mm-hmm. And he's punching the shit out of these kids. <laughs> and like push and so they start like turning on him, him and he's like punching and kicking and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh and then the lunch monitors notice and they come over and Tristan gets in trouble. Mm. And they said, well, he started this fight. And so Mm -hmm. he's just like furious and he's like, his eye is Mm -hmm. like swollen and his cheek is swollen and his knuckles are bleeding Mm -hmm. and stuff. And, uh, and so they asked him like, uh, how do you say that in English? Um, they're like, did you start this fight? And he's like, you better believe I started this fight. (laughs) (laughs) And he just like, when they asked him, but he wouldn't give the explanation because he was just so Mm -hmm. angry. Uh, mm-hmm. And but when when basically the uh, we asked him like well what happened and he told us and we were like you're awesome <laughs> do you want to go exactly. for ice cream <laughs> but eventually through the other parents they found out like what had happened and we mm-hmm. were called back into the the vice principal's office and she was almost like teary eyed and she's like uh, you know he's not suspended and you've raised your kid well and thank you. (laughs) But the thing is, is like, it's, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, 
this is Quebec, and Quebec is always a little bit of an outlier. But um, in a lot of places, like Jonathan Haidt was saying, like what they're teaching kids these days is uh, what they call moral dependency, which is that you're never, ever supposed to um, resist the bystander effect. You're never supposed to like step in and be a, a human being and like stand up for people mm-hmm. that are being hurt. You're always supposed to rely on the yeah. a power structure of some kind. You're you're supposed to go to the HR department mm-hmm. if you see somebody in your you know your institution that's being like bullied in some way. Don't don't stand mm-hmm. up and do something yourself, right? It's and just, say like that's bullshit. Don't talk yeah. to her like that. Like don't talk to him. Is like this that. the coddling of the American childhood kind of idea? Uh, well, it's part of his argument in that book, yeah. but he said yeah. it's that it's very totalitarian to set up a situation where you are constantly expecting institutions, whether they be you know the police or the HR department or the vice principal's office, or that you're you're constantly expecting like a power structure to step in and and make the world just when in fact like what we should be teaching kids is that no it's yours especially if you have power like especially if you're Mm -hmm. like a boy who's like you know big and if you have power of any kind like it's your responsibility to stand up to bullies like you Mm -hmm. shouldn't you can't we can't expect you know the i mean you've watched like the star wars movies i guess if you're watching yeah. any of them, but I mean, I think it's so perfect in the new Star Wars movies that the the evil emperor, the way in which he he sees his power, is by mm-hmm. um, coming to the aid of a victim. Mm-hmm. Right? There's like uh, the the what of it? Like what is what is her name? Like you must, you know, in the Star Wars movies, it's like. Uh, What's her name? The she's Naboo on Naboo. Anyway, but like the way in which the emperor seizes power in the in the Star Wars movies is that he is the one that comes to the aid of this mm-hmm. uh, planet that is being attacked by an evil corporation, mm-hmm. right? And um, everybody else is unwilling, and so it's 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 really really well written <laughs> but mm-hmm, uh, but mm-hmm. you know i that kind of anyway point being all of these kinds of behaviors which i think are healthy manifestations of you know mm-hmm. human human behavior and especially healthy manifestations of male uh, of masculinity uh, by mm-hmm. the apa have been redefined as being toxic masculinity which is ins- oh, to me is okay. just insane like it's really really insane and it's very totalitarian and yeah john wait a minute the guys who circled the girls and were groping them that's toxic masculinity um i you know i i don't know if i would that to yeah, me is well, just is just bullying. It's just bullying behavior. Guys who followed you home from when you were in grade five and six. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, those are I just mean, like those are like just bullying behavior. I think I think there's a, a natural tendency in all animals mm-hmm. that if you're bigger 
than you know other members of your species and you want their food or you want to you know hump them or you want their territory you mm-hmm. just sort of might is right you just sort of take what you want by force uh, well, i think but, that is a you know, i think that's a natural no, tendency that's the thing i mean i i raise rabbits i don't know if you know that but i raise rabbits i did not know that put, if you put if you put a that is my favorite meat in, in the, the world by the way yeah. oh my god i yeah. love rabbit <laughs> when when you put a doe that you would like to have bred, you know, so she has babies, in with a buck, and he tries to leap on her or, you know, hump her, as it were, mm-hmm. and she is not prepared for this, she will kill him. <laughs> I'm not kidding. She will go at him, no holds barred, and he'll wind up cowering in a corner. I'm not kidding. Wow. If, if if a young stallion tries to tries to jump on a mare in a herd, even a big young stallion tries to jump on a mare in a herd, she will beat his brains out with mm. her hind feet. If a if a female cat is attacked by a tomcat who wants to hump her, and she's not ready, she will kill him. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's the same with lionesses. It's the same. I mean. You know, wolves, female wolves, a dog that is not ready to mate, she will tell the male what's for. Okay, so here we are in a situation where we imagine that the female is incapable of withstanding the attack from a male because he's bigger, right? Or even a group of males. And I tell you, this this is new. This is an imaginary scenario because... I, I think it must come from like gang rapes during warfare or something, but honest to God, it's not something that we see in nature very much. Chickens will do it. Ducks will do it in the wild and in, but they're not closely related to us. Okay. <laughs> and furthermore, they're species which, you know, tend to form friendships. I, I have chickens as well. And believe it or not, I have uh, two roosters. I used to have three or four. And there are friendships between a hen and a rooster where the, the rooster will protect that hen from the other roosters. And she will stick by him and all this. And I never expect to see that because I was just hearing about, you know, pecking orders and dominus hierarchies. One rooster would come out on top. Nothing like that happened. Okay. Hmm. They're all individuals. Anyway, <clears throat> aside from that, uh, this is one of the reasons why I was so impressed with the story that um, my friend out in the Kalahari Ragai told one night uh, around the campfire when I'd had a whole bunch of people over for dinner and we were asking him for a story. I was always wanting to hear the so-called stories of God because I felt I had been negligent about understanding their religion. Uh And so he said, oh, I'll tell you an early story about God. Did did we ever talk about this? Uh -uh. (laughs) Mm-mm. No? Okay, so God is looking down. It wouldn't matter if we had, because, you know, I'm a Christian. Okay, I like he- be, hearing I'll, every story at least four times. Okay, okay. So so here he says, this is a story uh, from the early days, from the early days of the planet. Okay, the early days of God's having made the, the earth and everything. He looks down and he sees a bunch of Bushman girls going out gathering plants. And one of them is very beautiful and graceful. And the deity is entranced by her. And so he turns into a male human, right? And of course, because he's not, you know, he's running the rest of the universe at the same time, he can only come 
<laughs> material existence as this tiny little homunculus, right? So he's chasing after these girls and he's watching what they're eating and he's eating everything that they're gathering as he's chasing them. And he's growing and growing and growing bigger and bigger the whole time. And finally, he's about the size of like a six-year-old boy, right? And when the girls all stop to dig up some nice roots and stuff, they fling down their their back their packs their their leather crosses that they're collecting stuff in. So he creeps into the cross of this particular girl, and she picks up the cross and she goes, "Oh, that's heavy. <laughs> Let's get back home." <laughs> and, and so they all head for home. And the whole time that they're she's carrying him along, um. You know, he's eating everything in the bag and growing bigger and heavier. Right? And so then, <laughs> so then uh, they stop again for some roots, and she picks out a particularly nice, great big Barama root. Now these things can go can get up to five hundred pounds, right? But she picks out one that's maybe twenty pounds or something. She digs this up, she drops it into the bag, and knocks him out. <laughs> All right, so he's on the post, right? And so they get to camp. This is the story as the Bushman guy told it to me. It was amazing. Anyway, so they, they get it's like to, a they cross get to between camp. Greek mythology yeah, and yeah, penthouse forum. How many years? <laughs> so, so they get to camp, and she slings this pack down, and uh, and she runs off uh, to I can't remember what it was. Oh, to get more firewood. In the meantime, he kind of sort of comes to, and he's all groggy. You know, he's considerably larger, but all still groggy. And so she says, oh, okay, now where's that root? And he quickly holds it up so, <laughs> so so she doesn't realize that she doesn't reach her hand into the into the bag and find him there, right? And because he's still sore, his head's got a big mump on it and stuff. He's not used to this. He's God, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so then, you know, she takes the root and a couple of other things that she already had lying in her hut. And she starts a fire and she puts them in the ashes and she gets them all nicely cooked. And then she sets them aside to cool and she goes away again. She goes to see some her the neighbors who are actually her sister, her sister's husband and their kids. She, by the way, herself is engaged, but I didn't learn that till later in the story. But anyway, all this is aside. So she comes back to her hut having told them about the root and offering to bring it over so they could all share it, right? So she comes back. But in the meantime, God has crept out of her sack and has eaten the whole root and grown to a tall, big, healthy male human. Mm-hmm. Okay? So he's this big root has just turned him into, you know, uh, a fully grown man. And he sees her coming and kind of hides behind the hut Actually, I never did find out exactly where he hid. Um, I, I didn't want to ask that, but anyway, I assumed it was behind the hut. So she gets in the hut, and the root's gone. Right? She goes, oh "My God, somebody's stolen this!" So she races out again, and she accuses everybody else, like six other families camped in that in that campground, of stealing her root. And they're all pissed off at her. You know, we didn't steal your stupid root, you know. And and she tells her sister, and her sister says, "You're just imagining things. You ate it yourself. You you always were, <laughs> you always were so eager to eat these damn things." Anyway, a twenty so she pound had, root. She couldn't eat it. Yeah, twenty pound. Yeah, 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 right. You know, it's a story. It's a yeah, mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's not truth. I mean, it's <laughs> truth, but it's a me- metaphorical truth. Yeah. So she gets back to her fire. There's no food there. 
she reaches into the, her sack and there's nothing in there either. Right? <laughs> she's really mad. She's like, oh, fuck it. And she lies down, pulls a cross over her, says, I'm just going to sleep now. So, meanwhile, God has been leap, lurking behind her hut. He creeps in there, hauls the cross off her, leaps onto her, all inflamed with lust. And she goes, like, who the hell are you? Right? <laughs> and you're not. And she names a name, and I can't remember. It's a, it, has a, it has a pop click in it. Right? And that's her fiancé's name. You're not so-and-so. And... And he says, no. <laughs> and he, you know, like, he just assumes that he's going to be able to immediately penetrate. So he's ripping off her, her loincloth and everything. And she just said, yeah, the nerve. She pulls out her knife and she cuts his balls off. <laughs> okay. At this point, at this point, God goes, that hurts. And she immediately, the time before the present in the early days, when people could still talk to animals, she calls her friends the bees. Just sting these things, right? So the bees, the huge swarm of bees come up and they start stinging the balls. Oh my goodness, this is this as a kind of sack race, right? These two balls are hopping along in the turtle sack, trying to escape being stung. And every time they're stung, you know, one of them is stung that one leaps into the air and goes, ow! And, and semen leaps out, right? Okay, so the one ball says to the other ball, we got to bury ourselves in the soil. By this time, of course, they're out of sight. The woman is kind of going like, sting, sting, standing in her hut all mad, right? And, and holding her bloody knife. And in the distance, these balls go over a dune, and at this point, they see a patch of sand, and they go, here, let's go here. And they dig down and dig down and bury themselves deep enough that the bees give up and fly back to their, you know, fly back to their nest. So the girl, at this point, is furious. She doesn't quite know what happened. The guy just disappeared, right? But that can't be right. So she goes around, and she accuses all the guys there of jumping on her, she says, or else it was a stranger. Some man came and tried tried it on with me, and and I cut off his balls. And so everybody goes, yeah, yeah. It's like the story of the root, right? You had this root, and then it disappeared, and you accused us all of eating it. You're just nuts tonight. What's the matter with you? She says, no, no, it's true. It's all true. <laughs> I'll prove it to you. Right? And so she, I'll go find them. And so she very carefully uh, tracks the little traces of these balls as they shimmied over the dunes and stuff. And she finds a place where they dump themselves into the soil, right? Mm -hmm. And digs them out. And of course, by this time, the poor little fellows have all died, right? They're mm -hmm. dead. And they're sort of hard. The outside is soft. And she's kind of wiggling them in the sack. And she says, oh, this is weird. But anyway, it's proof. And she hightails it back to the camp. And, she sh and by this time, everybody's awake and aroused. And they're all mad at her. She comes back and she says, look, look at this. God's bee-stung balls. Yeah, yeah, bee-stung <laughs> balls, right? They're all covered in little, little bee stings and yeah. everything and pooping. And the people all go, oh, that's really interesting. They all sniff them. They sniff them. And they say, you know, let's cook these up. I bet they'll be really good. So they cook them. Of course, yeah. And ate them. Prairie oysters. the best thing anybody would ever eaten. Of course, and God's balls. the origin yeah. of the Kalahari truffle. <laughs> 
No shit. No kidding. And remember you know, all the I, I hear all that, I hear all myths. the dainty semen yeah. that peeped out from all the bee stings. I, well, I hear stories like was so covered awesome. in truffles because of all the seeds that were dropped, right? That's awesome. And to this day, Kalahari truffles are one of the most prized items of cuisine. Even the French know about <laughs> Kalahari truffles. I'm not kidding. That's Look amazing. I no, know. I, you know, like when I hear and stories then, like this. Yeah. One of the things I was I was talking to Stephen Marsh about this uh, when he was on the podcast last time, like we were talking about ancient um, mythology and stories and stuff like that, and he was talking mm-hmm. about a particular, uh, particularly wacky, like incredibly wacky Chinese uh, myth that he had that he had read about. It was like from an ancient mm-hmm. book, and when I hear stories like what he was telling me from these these Chinese myths and from what you just told me, like stinging God's balls and eating mm-hmm. them as truffles. The thing that strikes me immediately is that I I really think that what has got us to the top of the food chain and made us such an unbelievably successful species is that we have, we're incredibly good at teamwork and we mm-hmm. have phenomenal imaginations. And yeah. if you look at like, you know, the typical kind of like story uh, that you find in in sort of most kind of media today, they're so mm-hmm. unimaginative. They're so boring. They're so formulaic. <laughs> and you hear these ancient stories and you're like, what the fuck? Wow. Like, they're just insane. Wow. Like, they're just so <laughs> wacky. Like, you just think yeah. like, this is... This is one of our superpowers as a species, and we've somehow, to some extent, lost it. You know, like yeah. that that just totally insane David Lynch kind of mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. imagination. Like, yeah. well, that story you just told me, that is to- <laughs> like totally wild imagination. Mm-hmm. Right, and which I, is I think, whereas you watch a typical up. show, it's like yep. you watch a typical show on on Netflix, mm-hmm. and you know, like this was the problem with House of Cards. Like, you know, I I loved the acting on the show uh, before mm-hmm. you know Kevin Spacey got me too'd and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but everything that happened was so predictable. Yep, like everything that happened in that story you just told me was completely fucking unpredictable. Like mm-hmm. I had no idea where that was going, and nope. you know, and Stephen Marsh sent me like <laughs> a, a link to all these like <laughs> old Chinese stories, and mm-hmm. they're all like that. They're mm-hmm. all so fucking weird. Like you have no idea where the story is going to go. Like nope. no idea. It's just pure, nope. unadulterated human imagination, which is mm-hmm. wild and unpredictable and amazing and beautiful. And mm-hmm. yep. we we've mostly lost that i mean it's always there but we've we've lost it well let's put it this way i think um i think something happened to our view of both women gods and men that has dampened down the appreciation of just how incredibly wild and uh imaginative and self self I don't even know how to put it 
um, strong individuals can be and how incredibly bound we are to this planet and all its wonders. Mm-hmm. And we see the supernatural in these very, very authoritarian terms. But, you know, the Bushman's word for God, it wants, you know, if they, if you can even get them to pretend they know a term for it, is trickster. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the, it's the individual who, in a sense, almost um, fumbles creation into being through making errors and making, you know, being silly, <laughs> you know, and just, and, and, and trying to fool people and stuff. And, and this story, I did not expect to hear this story. You know, trust me, I was, I was sitting there and there were little kids listening to this little mm-hmm. kids. Okay. Now what do you suppose the little boys learned? Uh, to yeah. participate in rape culture. To mm. be charming, to yeah. um, I can and think that, of many yeah. things they might have learned from that. Yeah, so. yeah, and and also, you know, one of the interesting things that was said by a child uh, after the story was, "Oh, they do smell like that." You just have to like, holy shoot. But you know, the thing is that, that if we think of the story of Virgin Mary, okay, God, God doesn't even physically rape her in the Bible, right? He just kind of makes her pregnant as if that's some kind of spiritual thing, right? Well, it's only in one then, of the Gospels. In Luke well, yeah, it, so. yeah, I know. But then, you know, like, in, I remember some medieval uh, painting of this had this tube, like a, a some kind of uh, laboratory delivery tube <laughs> going underneath her skirt to illustrate how she got impregnated by God. It was rising from the heavens and all this. It was just silly. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, in this, in that biblical story, God makes Virgin Mary pregnant, this little teenager, right? And she doesn't cut off his balls and produce truffles. No, <laughs> no. Instead, he's too chicken shit to to go himself and explain what he's done to her. No, he sends some ad, some angel to go and say, "You are pregnant. And you're going to give birth to blah blah blah." And you know, I mean, that's a total turnaround of the view of. What are the rights of a of a of a young girl? You know, even if God wants to screw you, you can just screw him. You can just cut his balls off, and that'll be that. And that's <laughs> that. you know. And and so you know the the role of female self determination, self righteousness, if you will, of you know protection of self, that has been abrogated in the modern mythology. Women need protection. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, I, I I, personally think it takes, you know, we talk about women having to empower themselves and all of this. Well, we lost our power somehow, didn't we? How did that happen? I, I think, you know, I, I tend to, I take a long view of this. I, I think okay, lots of humans, including elderly male humans, elderly mm-hmm. female humans, uh, babies, you know, if it's like, you know, th- the reason why I, when I was posting that passage from Douglas Breshkov's uh, mm-hmm. book on yeah. the way he takes evolution, I posted a picture of of me washing Tristan know, when he was a little baby in his sink. But yeah. it, the point of posting that is that, like, 
I think what he's getting at, and I think what you get at in a lot of your work, is that we we absolutely need to take care of each other. And at different points in the life course, Mm -hmm. we all need people to take care of us. And Mm -hmm. we need to take care of other people. So for me, strength is, is merely a momentary gift that allows you to have the privilege of taking care of other people. Contributing. And that's contributing, yeah. taking care of other people. So I do I think uh, women in in many circumstances need to be taken care of? Absolutely. But mm-hmm. so do children and babies and, and old well, men and lots of people. You break you know? their legs. Yeah. yeah. So I the, the myth of like this sort of rugged and Randian kind of individual that doesn't need anybody else and I think that's ultimately um, a losing strategy for men, um, but mm-hmm. it's even more so a losing strategy for women for the most part. It, yeah. I mean, it's basically just a shitty way of seeing the world, period, but it's mm-hmm. an especially shitty way of seeing the world if you're, if you're a woman. Because the thing is, is like there are these like other members of your species that, out, you know, as Sam Harris puts it, like outweigh you, outweigh you by like forty or fifty pounds, and like mm-hmm. so, it's a it's a dumb strategy for anybody, but it's a, yeah. a, a really stupid strategy for a woman to adopt. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of like I don't need anybody. I just oh, yeah. you know, no, we I all know. need other people. Like so, exactly. we desperately need each other. Like. Mm-hmm. And and the idea that we can like sort of go it alone is mostly insane. Mm-hmm. Well, look at it this way: in the past, who were who do you suppose were our ancestors? I'll tell you who our ancestors were. They were the people who put the vulnerable individuals in their lives first. Mm-hmm. They were the people who made sure that the camps that they were in were safe for their children. They made sure that there was somebody there to make sure, that, you know, to ensure the safety of those children in case a predator came. They were there to um, provision those children and anybody who was vulnerable, like an old lady or somebody who'd broken a limb or a woman who just given birth, they they made sure the camp was big enough that there were enough women to go gathering and enough men to go hunting so that somebody, you know, of that bunch of people would bring back food for everybody. Yeah. And there were, you know, the fact that you have a dependency ratio, it's around uh, th- like one person would be feeding two or three and, and perhaps as many as four other people with their efforts every day that uh, higher than that is too much, right? Yeah. It's still too hard, but, but in, in, um, in a, in a normal sense around three is what you can manage. In other words, you can feed yourself, your wife, your, you know, equivalent of a, an adult is two or three young children and if you have teenagers, you start to finagle them into coming hunting with you or coming gathering with you so they can contribute to feeding their younger siblings. And so when you think about how human society evolved, that was the first thing. 
And yeah. anybody who did not put that first is not one of our ancestors. No. Well, that, I mean, no. that's what my mother always told us, like, growing up. She mm -hmm. repeated it like a mantra. It's like, to whom yep. much is given is much is required. Like, yeah, if you exactly. have... If you have strength, your strength is to contribute to your mm -hmm. to your mm -hmm. friends and family and to be there for like mm -hmm. if you uh that that's just what she repeated all the time. Like if if one of my you know, if my little sister was uh was picked on by another kid, she was like, You need to go and do something about that because you're responsible mm -hmm. for her. And mm -hmm. when she was a little girl, her her older brother, my my uncle Nigel, took care of her, and like her parents, mm -hmm. absolutely. If she came home and was like hurt, and mm -hmm. they would be incredibly angry at him. Mm -hmm. Like, why why didn't you go and help her? Why didn't you do something yeah. about that? Like, what's yeah. wrong with you? Like, like, but the idea that you would just care about yourself, mm -hmm. and that's all you would be responsible for just seemed to them to be disgusting. Like, <laughs> like why yeah. would you? Well, yeah, I know. And John, look at this uh, in a larger context, because uh, one thing that really struck me, particularly about the men in these Bushman camping parties was that they were not just looking after their own children. Okay. They were looking after everybody's children. Anytime that they killed something, okay, say they'd get a dike or a Thompson's gazelle or something like that, they'd bring it back to camp and they would turn it over deliberately to the person, usually an old guy, whose arrow had been used to kill that animal, okay? And then that person would in turn be in charge of distributing the meat so that every family in the camp, every child in the camp, got a portion of it okay yeah. because the hunting success rate was about one in four i mean it, that means if you have four guys in a camp and they all go out separately there's a chance that every week somebody's going to bring something back and you'll have meat on a regular basis if they go out in pairs or if they go out in a big group there's less of a chance mm -hmm. right so the efficiency of hunting, you know, of hunting quietly with poison arrows, that was actually very clever. And it was a good way of ensuring that everybody got fed. And that's yeah. one of the things that happened during our evolution, during the Middle Stone Age in, in Southern Africa. We start to see these technologies. And to me, that's a very clear signal that this, this provisioning was becoming central. Yeah, and that's the, the one of the, the things uh, like uh, Douglas, well, Friends Duval talks about this as well, but like uh, Douglas Ruskoff in his new book, Team Human, he says one of the things that's very strange and kind of fascinating about our species is that after a hunt, even if it's been like you know two days of pursuit after this animal, the normal mm -hmm. thing for humans all over the world, if you look at hunter-gatherers, is they, you know, they kill this animal, they wrap it up, and they don't eat any of it. Yeah. They carry it back to mm -hmm. the group. And it's when they're back with the group that they divvy it up and they yeah. they eat. And he said, mm -hmm. think about the incredible amount of like, you know, sort of power of will. That like mm -hmm. you've been running after something for two fucking days. And like mm -hmm. you're hungry. 
And you don't touch any of it until you walk a day back to like your group and you share with them, right? Like, yeah. and it, you yeah. know, it's if I, I, had a, I had a really long conversation with Jordan Peterson when he was here uh, in Montreal last time about this question. And I, I said to him, I sort of looked him in the eye and I'm like, I, I, I have a pretty good idea of what your end game is here, like for young men specifically. And uh, and his eyes kind of like twinkled, and I said, "Like you're you're basically just trying to like, you know, make them be good at at sharing and and like protecting and being like." And he's like, "Well, of course." He's like, mm-hmm. "Yeah." He goes like, "He goes, I'm I'm a Christian. I you know, my image of God is like somebody who sacrifices themselves on a cross. I want young men to get out of." their own heads and out of their mm-hmm. own individualistic, you know, mm-hmm. nightmares slash fantasies and be people who care about their yeah. aging parents and care about their neighbors. And he goes, I, when I get like a message from a young guy who's been like watching my videos and reading my book and stuff like that. And they say mm-hmm. how they, they got up at four o'clock in the morning in Edmonton and shoveled everybody's front walk mm-hmm. without asking for to be paid or anything. Mm-hmm. He's like, I weep. Yeah. He's like, that's what I'm trying to encourage young guys to do, mm-hmm. to be, yep. to self-sacrifice, to caring about other people, to mm-hmm. stop being a selfish, obsessed, anxious, depressed little prick and like mm-hmm. care about <laughs> other people. You know, like, yeah. and he's like, no, that's it. But he goes, you know, I can't say that outright. <laughs> no, no, no. I have to, like, do it. Yeah. You know, I have to, like, sort of. That's bring the them around a bit slowly. <laughs> you have to bring them around slowly. And so you talk about things that concern them. And you talk mm-hmm. about people that are disrespecting them. And you talk about uh, the dysfunctional models that our society mm-hmm. is. You know, I mean, like. A lot of sort of academic feminism ends up sort of having, you know, I I think the people who came up with this stuff probably were very well-intentioned, but it ends up happening, having exactly the opposite of effect that Mm -hmm. they might want. It, It sort of encourages girls to be like the worst kind of sociopathic young men. And it encourages young men to be worse than they perhaps already are. <laughs> like like oh, it's, yeah. it causes yeah. this this just just all around terrible mm-hmm. uh you know, like I see that this with students and stuff like that. Like their their reactions to the stuff, the messages that they're getting are mm-hmm. they're not good. They're not pro social. No. You know, like telling people that like it's empowering to only care about yourself and just like mm-hmm. screw around with like tons of people without any uh, attention yeah. to their emotions and to what they mm-hmm. might feel about that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that how that's empowering. I mean, that just seems like no. you're encouraging people to be like just little monsters mm-hmm. and then calling that like a social movement. It's weird. Yeah. 
Can I say something? You can say anything, Helga. Okay, okay. All right. You can tell me to go well, fuck myself with a with an elephant. I whatever you want. <laughs> calm down. Calm down. Okay, first of all, um I think that the idea that that there is honor. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's it's not just for men. Mm-mm. There's honor, right? And honor is related to this a social conscience that you're talking about this this ability to care for each other and you demonstrate your honorability by being honest by being courageous by being protective if you mm-hmm. if you will by being generous mm-hmm. okay? and and look at that look back at that story that I told what did this girl do right she persisted in wanting to share her food, mm-hmm. right? God's she balls. Would, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the big root and so yeah. on. That she, her nature was friendly and she wanted to share. She was also outraged, of course, by being attacked and everything. Mm-hmm. But, but even in spite of the fact that everybody was being nasty to her <clears throat> because they thought she was accusing them of stealing her root that she was accusing them of somehow knowing that this man was lying in wait for her and not doing anything, uh, you know, or accusing her of making all up and lying. In spite of all of that, she remained honorable. She said, well, I'll, I'll show you. I'll go get these roots. I mean, these balls. <laughs> Excuse me. And then, you know, like, so her persistent, her persistent self-affirmation of, uh, being being directed in a good way, you know that you know her outrage and everything else, but still she turned to her people, and she communicated to her people. She didn't keep anything to herself ever, mm-hmm. you know. What I'm saying? Okay, and she didn't blame anybody really. I mean, she just she just she just couldn't believe that people would come and steal her roof. <laughs> right? She couldn't believe that people wouldn't believe her when she told the story because she would expect. Nobody else to lie to her either. Nobody else to, to you know, uh, assume that she had stolen food either. So she was basically the epitome of an honorable person. And she had a real trial that day, right? And mm-hmm. it came out okay because she's responsible. Uh, God made a big mistake and now she's responsible because she called upon the bees for creating this wonderful thing, the Kalahari truffle, right? <laughs> the story is about a heroine, a heroine, you know, somebody who, who did an amazing thing. And so in a way, you know, it's a, it's, it affirms, if you will, female empowerment. Yeah. Okay. And in a good way. Okay. And so what men in this story are not even the enemy. Right. There's no, you know, sure, the man, the God came into the plant, into the world, to the material existence in this case as a male. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are other stories where he comes in as a praying mantis or a, or some other critter, you know, mm-hmm. or even as a woman. Once he came in as a, that's my wolfhound. Can you hear them? <laughs> that's awesome. Is that an Irish wolfhound? He's, I've shut the door. Is he an Irish wolfhound? This room. It's an Irish wolfhound. Just a minute. They are so amazing. I'll be right back. Oh. Andy. 
My nephew's gone down to tell her it's okay. I I, 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 I used to volunteer at the SPCA here in Montreal. Uh And uh, I remember, like, the we once we got like an Irish wolfhound, Mm -hmm. and I'll never forget. I went into like the cage to. Mm To clean the thing's cage and to like yeah. feed it and like talk to it and stuff like yeah. that. And I walked in and I didn't know much about dogs when I started volunteering at the SPCA. And I walked in and I was like, oh my God. This thing was so huge. Mm-hmm. Like it was like I was crouching and it was yeah. looking down at me. Of course, like it was yeah. like really tall, like this big mm-hmm. thing. And, uh, and so we kind of like, we were interacting and like it was it was amazing and i remember asking the guy like pascal uh so can i said this dog is like a little horse <laughs> like right? i said can can you like strap this thing into into something and so i can take it for a walk cuz i feel weird it's like it's in this small <laughs> little cage you know yeah. And so he was like, okay, fine, just like don't really, say anything. Yeah. But yeah, it was such a big dog. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. So you you have one wouldn't of those. Like, wouldn't you like a puppy? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never had a a dog in my life as a pet. I've oh, had like geez. lots of cats, but I've never had a dog. I mean uh, I've I've like dog sat dogs, but uh mm-hmm. I'm yeah. yeah. People do, you know. I I understand. Is is your wife uh, allergic? No, no. it's uh, she. She had dogs when she was growing up, but I don't okay. think she was responsible for them. But like, um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't worry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. It's no, just I mean, were, I I basically I like I will like <laughs> dog sit dogs, mm-hmm. but like I, it just seems weird to me to have a dog in an urban environment like you just uh-huh. keep them in a house cuz it just seems like they really need to like you know we we have a cat and we we've had cats and mm-hmm. even though all the animal rights people are like you need to keep your cat inside it's like yeah. really really dangerous and we've had you know we've had a, a cat that was like run over by a car and i had to scrape yeah. the cat off the street yeah. right in front of our house and you know what? It didn't change my view for a second. I still let my cat out because mm-hmm. I feel like to live a full life and yeah. to that is like existentially sort of wonderful and exciting. Cat needs to like run up trees and like have adventures and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I just don't understand how I could keep a large dog yeah. in my house. It seems to me like torture no you know what i mean yeah well i think that's why a lot of people in in towns and cities prefer these really small dogs yeah you know but But for um, me they're not they're not if it's not the size of a wolf it doesn't look like a dog to me (laughs) yeah like if it can't if it couldn't kill me on a bad day i don't want it as a pet so uh uh-huh well i i've i've actually had um property and my own life protected by my dogs wow um, how them. human of you 
Mm. I mean, we've been in partnership with them for like what they now think oh, like a yeah. hundred, yeah. hundred twenty-five thousand years. Uh probably longer. They, the most have... recent estimate I've heard is like a uh, hundred, hundred and twenty-five. And I think it's mm. like it's it's one of those things where you it's almost like lichen. You know, you you look at the symbiotic relationship and it just jumps out of you. Yep. jumps out as so unbelievably obvious. Like if we if we partner up with them, we have a hunter that can keep up with us in a run. Uh mm-hmm. we have something that like you know, they have this phenomenal sense of smell and hearing, mm-hmm. which we don't. We mm-hmm. have a really really good sense of like strategy and organization and tools. Mm-hmm. It's just I mean if you, you know, I was telling my my students this today in my class this morning. Like, I'm like, if you take a band of humans and put it together with like some domesticated wolves, it is a super predator that makes absolutely anything that has ever walked on planet Earth pale by comparison. Yes, it's an unstoppable eating machine. <laughs> like, I mean, well, we can, we can, we can outrun anything. We can track yeah. anything. We can mm-hmm. come up with, stra- I mean, we're just like, we can go to sleep. And then if something's trying to like eat us, our dogs will wake us up. You know? In fact, that role is probably primary. I, I think, uh, uh, the, the partnership started, uh, because it was protective. Mm. You know, they ate the, they scavenged around the, the hunter gatherer camps. They, they ate the parts that the people didn't eat. They kept the flies down because they ate all those, all these things. And they, um, they gave a warning when mm-hmm. another bear came because they would, uh, they would view it as an invasion of their own territory. If a bear came or a lion came or a leopard came or a cheetah came, they would also keep uh, you know, things like rhinoceroses and elephants from blundering into your camp because they'd wake up and notice them and bark, mm-hmm. you know. And if you've ever seen a tiny little Pomeranian or, or for that matter, a cat putting a black bear to, to run, <laughs> <right> <laughs> and, and there, are, there are videos of this. You just have to Google it. Um, you can see the value of that. I, yeah. uh, I, I, I think you know, when we partner up with animals like, you know, uh, a dog, a, go- a wolf that is becoming a dog, we enlarge the scope of our, our camp safety. We also provide um, joy. Uh, children love love to play with puppies. <laughs> you know, it's every <laughs> child. Yeah. And there are plenty of other creatures that we have entered into these um uh, probably unintentional partnerships with over the centuries, over the millennia that we hardly ever think about. I, I recently uh, came across something about the history of uh, our domestic um, Drosophila, which are the, the fruit flies, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the interesting thing is that the fruit flies that we now use in research are the same fruit flies that arose in in parts of Africa among hunter gatherers because they 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 collected so many fruits and vegetables in their camp, right? 
And it's it's one species that became basically symbiotic with humans yeah. and moved around the entire planet with us. Yeah. No, I know. Like, I, I actually, the first time I heard this, I was uh, Ooh, 20 well, years right. old. And yeah. David Suzuki told me this when we were completely yeah, baked, completely yeah. stoned at a friend's house. Because <laughs> he he did his early research on fruit flies. Yeah, of course. And uh, yeah, he he told me all about like the like mm-hmm. how they had been in this symbiotic relationship with. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's, fascinating. it's quite yeah. It's very there's um I don't know if you ever heard, but there's this uh, podcast called Crime Town. Yeah. And uh, the first edition, the first season was on Province Town. Yeah. And. There's this kind of random bit in the podcast which talks about how there was this, like, really important, uh, like, kind of the major drug dealer in Rhode Island mm-hmm. was a um, very colorful, interesting character. But he bought this big plot of land in a rural area in Rhode Island, and he was obsessed with wolves. And so mm-hmm. he found, like, a breeder in, I think, if I remember correctly, like in northern Canada, who Mm -hmm. was breeding domestic dogs with wolves Mm -hmm. to... um, And so he paid this guy, because he's a drug dealer, he's a coke dealer, he's got like Mm -hmm. shitloads of money. So he paid this guy like tons of money to basically go against the law and his own personal ethics (laughs) and Mm -hmm. to sell him actual purebred wolf puppies so mm-hmm. this guy had a um, a wolf pack on his property that mm-hmm. were completely wild like wolves mm-hmm. on his property and he had a place where they would sleep at night and he would feed them but they were basically completely wild and so mm-hmm. this guy would have these like epic like Cirque du Soleil level like you know Las Vegas crazy you know like uh, hedonistic parties at his place in his mansion and people <laughs> always talk about how like there were these wolves howling on his property <laughs> and when you would drive in this like wolf pack would like come and like greet you and stuff like that <laughs> and anyway it's it's very fascinating but so they, it's only kind of a, a, a subplot in the podcast. They barely talk about it at all. But I went and looked into it more. And he, it's true. This guy really did have like a wolf back on his property. And it's so fascinating because, like, it was a real problem for the DEA and the FBI. <laughs> because they kept trying to, like, set up cameras on his property. And, to, and the, wolves to, the wolves would fucking, like, scream and yell and make tons of noise, which mm-hmm. would alert him and his friends that mm-hmm. there was something going mm-hmm. on on the property. And they would go and check and find... And they would be, like, they would try and sneak on the property in, like, camo gear and everything mm-hmm. with... And, like, establish... Like, put cameras on his property. Mm-hmm. The wolves mm-hmm. would scream and yell and would... And after they had run off the property, the wolves would like sit by that tree and yeah. howl and scream, basically like, "Look at that fucking tree! There's some shit on that tree!" <laughs> like, I know, yeah. And they would pull it down. And I'm mm-hmm. listening to this, and clearly the person making this podcast doesn't see this as interesting information. I'm rewinding it like three, four times in a row, going, 
oh my god i see why we partnered (laughs) with these motherfuckers (laughs) like like, i totally see why we partnered with them this is clearly such a wonderful symbiotic relationship like the fbi and the da da cannot deal with this i never worried about the fbi but i'll tell you um a story about what happened with my very first wolfhound which by the way i had in town in edmonton and she was fine with that we uh, live very close to the mill creek ravine in edmonton which goes down into the river valley so we used to go for i've been there yeah Yeah. and and so um so i had a fenced yard for the dogs and so i also had a fox terrier but anyway this gigantic wolfhound uh, was fine with everybody, and we were going to move to the country. We moved out to our farm somewhat later. So we had a garage sale. And, you know, Darcy... You and Gordon? Was, yes. Yeah. And so uh, Darcy was just lying on the lawn, chewing on some chew, some bone or something that I'd given her, just watching all these people come in. She'd gotten tired of getting up and greeting everybody. <laughs> And at one point, however, a man came through the gate to look at all the things we'd set up for our garage sale. And she instantly looked up, got to her feet, and started woofing at him. Woof, woof, right? And then she started outright barking at him. And I was very embarrassed. You know, I mean, people were quite frightened of her when she stood up and started barking because they, they're very big dogs. <clears throat> and so I... I, I apologized to the man and I put her in the house. So I thought that was the end. Okay. At midnight that night, I feel this wet nose tracing up my leg in, while I'm in bed. And it's her. And she's trying to wake me up. And she's whining softly. So I thought, oh, boy, she probably has to go out to pee. So I went to the back door and I let her out. And she ran to the back gate and she was doing this kind of howly bark. And I thought, oh, God, she's going to wake up all the neighbors. It must just be a stray cat. I ran out there in my nightgown. And what do I see when I look through the gate at the back? I see this same guy. He's brought a pickup truck. He's got a buddy with him. And they're trying to load up this clawfoot tub that Gordon had gotten uh, from a a demolition of a really big mansion that we were going to take to the country with us because he wanted to set up a bathhouse, right? And they were going to steal this bathtub. What a bizarre thing to steal. I know, but it was very heavy, so we brought a buddy back. But we had been keeping it behind the garage. It was outside the gate. So when that man came to our garage sale, he was just scoping to see what there was. Oh, God. Oh, I know. And she knew instantly and she saved our bathtub, you know. And so for this man, this man and his buddy, once they saw I was there, I said, what are you doing? You know, how one does. And, of course, they dropped the bathtub. In fact, the one guy got it and dropped on his toe and howled. And then they raced to the car, got in the car or the truck, and drove away, right? Wow. So I ran back into the house, got Gordon up, and we went. we instantly went outside in our in our pajamas and, and nightgown and dragged his darn bathtub inside the gate. We weren't gonna leave it sitting behind the garage anymore. 
and to this day we have it. It's uh, it is in fact in our bathhouse in in behind the garage here on the farm. But how did the wolfhound know this? And you see, she didn't have to be big to do that. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to be anything except astute and sane and very very observant. And she sensed right away there was something wrong with this guy. Well, what did you think about, I mean, it was in Alberta, I think, like, I believe it was, where there was uh, these, like, Native kids that were kind of wasted and partying and, like, going and, like, having fun on somebody's land. And then the landowner, like, freaked out and started, like, shooting people. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, what what was your, because I found responses to that here in Quebec were really fascinating because, um, you know, a lot of people I know who live out in the country, their response was like, Oh, come on. You know, kids will be kids. They're stupid. They like, they get wasted and like, they're like having fun and doing dumb stuff. And like, you just Mm -hmm. ignore them. And other people I know, uh, were like, well, if somebody comes on your land, it's it's like an intrusion and you know mm-hmm. you I mean what was your impression of okay like, well it, it it this this incident in Alberta which happened down near Calgary I think came after the killing of uh Colton Bushy in Saskatchewan remember that yeah okay and well just tell our tell our listeners about that so they'll know what we're talking about Oh, um, they're mostly was, Americans, so <laughs> yeah. There was there was a young um, group of native boys. I think they were all boys. It might have been a girl, but I can't remember. Who were partying? Okay, mm-hmm. and they were, they were driving around, and I don't know if they were intent on stealing anything. That that point remains unclear. But what happened is they had a flat tire, and. There, it wasn't completely flat. It was getting flat. And so they drove up this rural uh, driveway, apparently to ask for help. But they were a little bit, I don't know, stoned or something. And, and one of them saw a really nice, um, uh, uh, one of these, uh, I can't remember if it was a motorcycle or a, an ATV or something and said, Oh, nice. And he, he kind of looked at, he was looking at it. He may even have slung a leg over and, and, and looked at how, how you could sit on it. I mean, they were unafraid, I, I guess. And it turned out that the owner and his son were in the garage or behind the house in the, in the, in a workshop and they came out and, and immediately uh, started um, you know, shouting and, and shooting at these kids. And uh, most of them had gotten out of the car because they, I think they, they intended to ask for help. And and so they took off running down the driveway. Meanwhile, the driver, this young guy, uh, young Mr. Boucher, he was, he was trying to drive the truck out and he panicked and I guess uh, drove it into another vehicle um, instead of backing it up, which I can see happening. And uh, the uh, property owner had on him a handgun that he'd been firing, and he reached into the open window, uh, put the muzzle of the gun against 
the boy's the back of the boy's head and fired. He told people later that he thought the gun was empty, that he had fired shot off all the rounds that were on it. And that may be true, I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. First of all, when somebody comes onto your property in a rural what was that? Do you know what that noise is? Anyway, never mind. When somebody comes in onto your property in a rural area, what normally one does is one asks a question. Hello, <laughs> I haven't seen you here before. Is there something I can do for you? Right? You need help or are you lost? And they didn't do that. The owners didn't do that. They immediately assumed that it was people up to no good. The other thing is that who... But, but it depends. I mean, like I... You know, mm-hmm. my like my doctor lives on um in rural southwestern Quebec near the American right. border. Right. And there was in the nineteen eighties a spate of home invasions that happened yes. where he lives. Yes. And the thing is is like if you call the police down there, like mm-hmm. even it's if it's like July, clear night in July, it's gonna take mm-hmm. them like thirty, forty five minutes to get to where you are. Yes. Yes, so you have to be able to defend yourself. And I've heard plenty of stories, you know, including from friends who live in the area where you get a bunch of hunters who are totally like high end coke and drunk and are out like, you know, hunting. And they're just like in a crazy state of mind and they are going on private property and hunting. And you come out of your house and say like, my kids are in this house. Why are you shooting off guns like near my house? And they mm-hmm. turn the yeah. guns towards you and say, you want a piece of this? Like, yeah. And I know. you at that point, like, what are you going to do? Like, I know. you're I like, know. you know, my, my friend Holly told me once she was at home with her daughter and her husband was in Montreal at the, he was working at the NFB and she was home with her daughter by herself breastfeeding and like these hunters are drunk walking through her front lawn Mm -hmm. what is she gonna do right Mm -hmm. so um like (laughs) i (laughs) i I understand how if you live in a rural area and you don't have law enforcement close by Mm -hmm. you might be inclined to have strong reactions Right. To seeing unpredictable people on your property behaving exactly. in an aggressive and strange way. I know. And I, I agree. I can see both sides of this. Me too. Really completely. Can. Like 100%. Yeah. I can totally see like, because I've, I've actually been both sides. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, when I was, uh, my mom like shipped me off to Virginia for a summer. And I was like living with my uncle Pete in Rocky Mount, Virginia. And I was, you know, we had an agreement where I would do some work on the house in the morning and Mm -hmm. then I would be free to do whatever I wanted in the afternoon. And so I would Mm -hmm. go like wandering for miles and miles and miles, like through the forest, looking for like turtles and snakes and salamanders (laughs) and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. I, I would, I would wander like really far, right? Like, and I would wander onto private property and, A couple of times, like not just once, like a couple of times, I suddenly had some man or woman pointing a gun at my forehead. 
because I had wandered onto their property and or their dogs were chasing, you know, like yeah, and stuff like that. And they're like, "What are you doing on my property?" And mm-hmm. I said, um, <laughs> "I was just wandering around looking for box turtles, actually." <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and they said, "Like, well," and I said, "I didn't see any marker." And then they'd laugh and they'd be like, "Yeah, there's not really a marker of the property." Uh, yeah. But they said, "So you're actually looking for like turtles and snakes and stuff?" I'm like, "Yeah, completely." And they're like, mm-hmm. "Um," and they like uncocked their gun and put it down and go like I can I can show you where there's some really good snakes. <laughs> no, I know. And then they and would the show thing, me and then they the would phone, drive they me back to, to my uncle's they house. They talked to you, didn't they? Um, they didn't no, but they put a gun and, and were ready to shoot me first. I know, I know. And the thing is that um, I think that point of view where you know that a pe- person, particularly in a rural area, is vulnerable to somebody who comes in who may be armed, right? Mm-hmm. Or may not be in a property. Often are. Often are yeah. armed. Well, often are, right? Hunters and so on. And I've encountered hunters behind our property here as well. And that, in that circumstance, you're going to be cautious. And if possible, you're going to be able to either run away or defend yourself or something. Yes, you're vulnerable. And I can see having um, guns available uh, in the house or in the barn in case something like that happens. But first you find out whether or not these the, the, the people who are coming down your driveway in a, in a vehicle are there to rob you <laughs> or are they just coming for help? And apparently uh, the property that, that it was involved had a sign saying that mechanical work could be done there. I, I I had that understanding anyway. And that I think that's what they were doing behind the house in the machine shop. But anyway, the thing is, shooting first is the issue. And the reason why I think this became a big controversy and there was a lot of, of uh, polarization about it was because uh the the guns were the first thing that spoke yeah well i you know i asked my i asked my and my doctor is you know i should say this in his, in his defense of his character um he's like mm-hmm. a super left wing incredibly sweet wonderful guy uh but he's you know he's extremely well armed out in the mm-hmm. country and you know you're from rural canada we have like a big split here in canada People in mm-hmm. urban areas are not armed, and if they are, they mm-hmm. are breaking the law and the social contract. But people mm-hmm. in rural art areas are very well armed. So he's very well armed, but he also has like these ferocious, massive German shepherds, right? So mm-hmm. um, his, you know, when that whole thing happened in Alberta and that that whole story, I asked him about it, and he said, "Well." Um, you know, I get it on one level, but my dogs would have been the first level of defense. Mm -hmm. So my dogs would have gone out and like, you know, made things very uncomfortable for those people. And and if those people, if they, if they showed themselves to be just 
kids screwing around or people who had accidentally like come on my property, I would have mm-hmm. called off the dogs mm-hmm. and uh and we could have worked something out and that would have yeah. been fine. If they would yeah. have shot my dogs, I would have shot them. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. not in the legs, oh, in the face. So right. like uh but you said the the problem there is like with the interpretations that I've heard in the media is that they're either assuming that these people are like complete racist monsters mm-hmm. or assuming that they're completely justified. And he says, like, actually, mm-hmm. I think the truth is like neither. No, exactly. Like, like the truth is like they, um, they overreacted. Mm-hmm. And, but the way in which they overreacted was not totally out of the realm, you know, cause my, my doctor's almost, He's like turning seventy in two months. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, his uh he and his wife, they're like they're older, like they if there's some random teenagers behaving in a really erratic and potentially violent way on their property, mm-hmm. they need to take that very seriously. Yeah, yeah. And the the other thing, of course, is that these were boys from the native reserve, you know, and that that entered into it and it made it into a much more contentious issue. I think also that, um, did it have to though? I don't know. I, I, I wonder sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, did it have to? Well, why did the rancher overreact? Um, would he have reacted quite that same way? If they, if if it was just a bunch of local teenagers from the town, like white kids, like yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, my guess well, is no, no, my guess know. is and no. That's why it, it became a big issue. Yeah, and it's so sad. You know, the whole incident was so sad. Now, if this silly man had had wolfhounds, you know, none of this would have occurred. No actual wolves, wolves would have been right there. <laughs> actual, because they would have gone and like would bit not those even kids have come all the way out of their car. Yeah, <laughs> they would not. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's the you know the 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 private properties that I wandered onto a number of times when I was in Virginia. You know, when I was twelve years old, uh, they had it was dogs first, guns second. It yeah. was never guns first. It was no. dog. It was like a typical. You know, mm-hmm. you could get in a time machine and go back like 40,000 <laughs> years and it would have been mm-hmm. exactly the same. If you're dealing with Homo sapiens sapien, you're going to get dogs first, humans second. Kind of right? Be right so, there, yeah. You know, like I, I first had the dogs yelling and chasing me mm-hmm. and then I had a guy with a gun pointed at my head. So mm-hmm. uh, saying and like, it, what are you doing here? <laughs> It's a very interesting uh, uh, kind of, you know, how do you deal with strangers? Because, of course, if the dogs know who it is, then they're not going to react that way. And what you're going to do is you're going to look up and you're going to see somebody you know coming towards you surrounded by a happy pack of dogs, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, and that usually would be the scenario. Now, if you're a, if you're a leopard, it's not going to look like that. <laughs> And that's why I think we domesticated dogs. I I do know that the the hunter-gatherers generally didn't take dogs hunting with them, and they said it was because they scared the game. (laughs) In other words, uh, the hunter got very, very close to animals, 
and just shot them uh, with a very small arrow, which was poisoned. And he couldn't get that close if he had the dogs with him because the dogs would race ahead and, you know, chase these animals. And so that was, you know. And so it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon. The only time that they used dogs was when they went after animals that were a problem, particularly at night, like a, a, a hyena or something that had been acting dangerous, or they were trying to get a particular kind of um, uh, I don't know, large ground living anteater or something. I, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what, because it was, I never saw this. I was, it was not done while I was there. And they said, then they would take the dogs to track the beast and to surround it. And then they would club it to death. Wow. You know, but, but that's for certain kinds of, of animals that are dangerous. And if it's surrounded by the, like, you know how wolves will surround an animal that they have run down. Yeah, and then the animal will be at a standstill, and that's when they start to attack it. Yeah, like well, a, like a muskox that they yeah, cornered in a in a creek, and they just like, yeah, and I think annoy for it animals, for three days until it dies. Yep, yeah, yep. And the thing is that that I think for really large, dangerous animals like the water buffalo and the rhinos and the elephants and so on, maybe even giraffes, in some parts of Africa, dogs were used in this way, but I doubt it happen very often because every single animal I just named mm-hmm. is uh, is another keystone species in its environment. Yeah. And humans figure that out pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, and when when hu- human hunter-gatherers uh, moved into uh, new environments, that's one of the first things they figured out is what what are the essential parts of this ecosystem and how do they function over time? And then they acted accordingly. You know? Well, it's and funny because when you were talking about that that crazy time. myth uh, where mm-hmm. they you know, cut the god's balls off, I immediately yeah. thought of, uh, you know, my, my wife is fin- half Finnish. And, like, mm-hmm. they have these Finnish bear dogs, right? And the Finnish yeah. bear dogs are similar to huskies in the sense mm-hmm. that they are, like, one of the only species that polar bears will run away from yeah like and the reason is is that finnish bear dogs and huskies they will sacrifice themselves Mm -hmm. to destroy a polar bear so like one of them will be getting like you know ripped to shreds by the polar bear and the other one will run from behind and like bite balls off of its body (laughs) they will like they will keep attacking even though they're getting killed like they will just you know sacrifice themselves and so Mm -hmm. polar bears know this and they're like these motherfuckers are crazy yo they're like they'll fly a plane into your building you know like Mm -hmm. so like they just they're like they're these terrorist crazy Mm -hmm. animals and so they if they see finished bear dogs or uh inuit huskies they they back off because they're like they are willing to sacrifice themselves for their group Mm -hmm. and their group involves us which is amazing (laughs) like that's i know that's the kind of uh the the truly sort of heroic Mm -hmm. um thing about our species is this willing willingness Mm -hmm. to sacrifice for other members of our tribe 
And we've mm-hmm. lost that. We've lost it with this with this Anne Rand bullshit, with this individualism, mm-hmm. with this kind of a certain kind of like capitalist like logic that it's all about you and it's all about mm-hmm. right. And it's just it's toxic and it's it's mm-hmm. ultimately anti-human. Right? Because like yeah. what is mm-hmm. what has made us so successful as a species is not our intelligence or our strength or it's each other. Right. It's mm-hmm. that we're really, really good at standing up for each other and for mm-hmm. being kind of united. Right. And that's. Uh, yep. Uh, and we spend our adult lives preoccupied with the care of our home and family, our yeah. friends and family, our network of community. And that without that, with when if we're removed from that kind of context, if we're alienated from that we often would rather die. That's what Durkheim found a century ago when he did his study of suicide. Yeah. It was alienation. Yeah. Yeah. And so people who become suicidal are often people who cut themselves off or have been cut off by their community. And so that's how deadly that is. That's Mm -hmm. how utterly inhuman that is. And it worries me, you know. Now, I have to ask you something, John. If we've been talking for quite a while, and this has been really, really enjoyable. But I <laughs> Same here. <laughs> you, yeah. I wanted to ask you, because I thought that we were going to talk about the wizard and the, and the prophet. <laughs> we got right? into so much more, more fascinating I know, I know. things. Yeah. So what I'm going to suggest here, because I have to... <laughs> I have to go out and and uh, and uh, feed my horses and stuff, and then I have to go and feed my men <laughs> downstairs who have been promised, you know, potato pancakes or something. And probably my nephew has given up on me and is now cooking something. But anyway, I I should really attend. Yeah, to we things. should we should so, do this again, and we could talk okay, about the wisdom well, and the well, prophet. Let's, let's, let's try this again. I'm yeah. sure you'll have to edit this somewhat. No, we don't do that at all. So. Okay. We include everything. So. <laughs> oh, oh God. Okay. Well, anyway, just uh, just to let you know, I you know there there is a number of things that we can we can talk about about the book and about uh, the the audio that you had me listen to, and I think that would be also very productive. But I I think we should quit now. Yeah, we should. <laughs> All okay. right. Have a wonderful night, and you too. I will talk to you soon. Yes. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.